0: Lightbringer presents between two Weirwoods live discussion panel. This week's topic world building, featuring history of Westeros, Joe Magici, Joe Magician, Secrets of the Citadel, and your host, Lucifer Means Lightbringer.
1: Thank you, Mr. John Walsh, for the good flamenco guitar, as always, and uh, I forewent the, uh, and thank you, Gemma, for reading our lovely introduction, of course. I forewent the actual video intro because I've had a whole bunch of trouble trying to get that to work with Google Hangouts, uh, so eventually I'll get that happening, I'll talk to somebody smarter than me and figure that out, but we got you a picture, and we got you wonderful Gemma, so that's gonna, it's gonna have to get you in the mood for today, so... With that, let me introduce my guest, starting with Gemma from Secrets of the Citadel. Say hello, Gemma.
0: Hi, I'm Gemma from Secrets of the Citadel. I'm really excited to be here and to be talking about world building in the Song of Ice and Fire. Thank you for having me on Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Um, Let's get some.
1: Yes, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be full on nerd here, but we will not forget to uh, keep, keep in mind the Harding conflict, of course. So, Aziz from History of Westeros is my next guest. Say hello, Aziz. Hello, Aziz! Oh, yes, you
2: didn't mean that. Yeah, no, that's, that's an old joke. It's not really that funny anymore, but sometimes it cakes you by surprise. Yeah, hey, everybody, I'm Aziz from History of Westeros, and this is a really fun topic that I'm excited to discuss. Of course, um, my show focuses on this kind of topic in a sense quite often, so uh, it's right in my wheelhouse, and I've got a lot to say, and I'm eager to hear what my co-panelists have to say as well, so let's do it.
1: And finally, the one and the only, the star of his own self-titled YouTube channel, Joe Magician.
3: Hello everybody, it's me, it's Joe Magician. Ah!
1: Uh, You can also find me on
3: the (laughs) Mr. Monthly Podcast and Watchers on the Wall. I'm going to do the whole thing. I'm going to do all the titles just to make you uncomfortable. I'm just kidding. Titles, Uh, titles. No. (laughs) And uh, I just put out a a video on Brandon Stark with Aziz, who was reading the quotes, which made me giggle endlessly while I was editing (laughs) it. It (laughs) Made me giggle, too. (laughs) I made him read some of the... uh, best parts of george's writing quote unquote and uh i'm gonna be having a thing coming out in the next week or so with amanda from disputed lands uh about targaryen prophecy so look forward
0: to that
1: uh steven stark hitting us up with the honorary six dollars and 66 cents super chat thank you Stephen. horns high uh (laughs) Mm -hmm. he says the dream panel really looking forward to this one is anything missing from the world building i've noticed very few festivals or holy days Mm. uh we do we do have a section set aside for critiquing uh the world building but we will be fanboying for a solid hour and a half before we get to that part so eventually eventually
0: (laughs) a good balance
1: and I'd also like to give a nod to Sanrixian, the hand of the dragon, also creator of this lovely Sanrixian T-shirt. You can get her gear at Sanrixian.com, and I think uh, I've yeah, we're all we're all grabbing some. She's got all kinds of cool stuff, and more stuff on the way, including uh, uh the very own uh, Caribear Cthulhu hybrid uh, creation that was designed right here live on Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel, not three weeks ago. So uh, yeah that's happening uh, guys do take let's go back through and I want you to tell me what it is that you have been working on most recently or what you're going to be working on Joe I know you mentioned the one thing yeah. but uh, Gemma, what are you, you 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 were a good boy and uh, followed the outline but Gemma tell me uh, what you what are you working <laughs> on lately
0: um, I've been working on my unraveling the text series because every time I post a video that is not my unravelling the text series i get a flurry of comments when's the next unravelling the text when's the next unraveling the text why are you wasting our time with theories about bran stark and the night king when we need the next chapter i'm already four yeah. chapters ahead of you you know this is outrageous i kind of feel like george r r martin just a tiny tiny bit but i mean obviously on a way less huge scale of the winds of winter debacle but so yeah i've, I've been working on that i can't What people don't seem to understand is I can't just do one chapter in isolation. I will do several chapters in one go because they they throw back to each other, as you know. So I've got about six now in the pipeline that I'm putting the finishing touches to. So there will be, there you go, Johnny Jedi. When is the next unravelling video? It's coming very soon, I promise.
1: (laughs) (laughs) are Are you trying to say that people in this fandom can be slightly impatient? What?
0: Uh, <laughs> That's just
1: beyond the pale, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so uh, Aziz, what have you been working on lately? Alright, well we
2: have been working on the second part of a Blood Raven episode. We are this second episode's gonna cover all his time as hand. There's a lot to deal with there, the reigns of Ares the First and Makar. And there's a lot of this is the time period when the prophecies that Rhaegar stumbled on later got discovered. Uh, this is Maester Aemon, Bloodraven, Ares the First, and uh, all these other guys who got that stuff started. The stuff that Rhaegar kind of stumbled onto later and started mailing, I almost said emailing, emailing Rhaegar uh, Aemon about on the wall. Yep. Basically. <laughs> and, uh, and going back and forth on. So that's really cool stuff. And there's obviously a lot of Blackfire stuff in that episode. And after that, we're going to be working on Nymeria. Um, Nymeria, not the wolf, but the Roynish, uh person of, uh, of great fame from history. There's a lot to say about her. And she goes to so many interesting places so that it's also, you know, we get to explore Sothoryos and, and Nath and the, the Basilisk Isles and all this cool stuff. And then just let alone the politics that, and adventures that happen once she actually gets to Dorne. So lots of fun stuff there. And before that, we did a Crips of Winterfell episode, and we've um, been releasing a lot of our panels from Con of Thrones like you have. That's been a lot of fun, too.
1: So that about so covers would it. That, would that be uh, maester.amon at glasscandle.net?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe, uh, or maybe at org. you know, I don't yeah. know how they... How they totally. do these things.
1: <laughs> the glass candle's like the server in that in that instance. But, uh, yeah, there will be plenty of cat sightings. And you guys, you missed out about ten minutes before we started. <laughs> Aziz, Aziz had pointed his camera at the floor and was just giving, like, full, full-on belly rubs to his, like, 50-pound cat or whatever. Oh, that wasn't was <laughs> a belly rub. That was something else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't he like likes to be spanked. Anyways. Uh, okay, so... I like to ask all of my guests here on Between Two Weirwoods uh, one simple question, which is what makes George R. R. Martin great? And of course, uh, if you guys have watched the panels that I put out from Con of Thrones, you know that I did a panel called What Makes George R. R. Martin Great with two out of three of today's guests, with Joe and Gemma. And uh, Aziz was actually supposed to be on that panel, but Aziz was a big star and was doing 12 other panels and was conflicted out of that one, so... Uh, Originally, the idea was to sort of just take up that topic of what makes George great and do another panel with the same guests and um, this time invite Aziz uh, because there is so much different things to talk about. But as we uh, chatted this week, we sort of zeroed in on world building as one sort of really cool aspect of George's writing to vamp out on. So that's going to be the topic today is world building. So setting aside world building, uh, why don't each of you give me, starting with Gemma. Uh, one other thing that you like about George's writing that makes his writing great—that is uh, noteworthy.
0: Wow! Yeah, I, I I struggled to think of one thing, and I also struggled to find something that wasn't necessarily related to world building. And I couldn't. This is related somewhat to world building for me. It's the foreshadowing. It's it's all about foreshadowing, because the, <laughs> this world is just full of every word, every statement, every bold statement from a character that inadvertently foretells their doom, the the dreams, the prophecies, the visions. Um, And again, this does tie in with world building, but we've got house sigils, we've got fools and jesters, and we've got songs. There's just so many different types of foreshadowing that goes on. Um, one particular example I really enjoy is things like the symbolism that goes on, like the weirwood trees in the respective gods' woods of all of the noble houses, all have a very distinctive and different look about them. The one at Harrenhal just looks utterly terrifying, and it's got three huge scratch marks that bleed red. Um, the one at Casterly Rock is struggling to grow um the ones in there's three in the reach and they're huge and they're bursting with life and 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 that in itself is a a more subtle version of foreshadowing for these noble houses but then we've got the real full-on foreshadowing the direwolves the names of the direwolves the fates of their direwolves I have seen people say that the foreshadowing for this world is a bit on the nose sometimes but i i don't agree with that i think in retrospect it is of course you know because we go back and read that and go oh, of course it was there um these passing comments that slip by you the first read but then when you go back it is blatant it's and to the point where it's almost hilarious i've got a couple of examples um theon says that hodor did not know much but no one could doubt that he knew his name um <laughs> Catelyn, Kathleen felt her heart had turned to stone at the time you just think oh that's you know she's she's really feeling it right now you look back on a reread and go of course it's all there um the hand tells aria keep your mouth shut and do as i tell you and we may even be in time for your uncle's bloody wedding i i just love this stuff i love it because you don't catch it the first time so it is not on, it's only on the nose in hindsight and And that's kind of the point of foreshadowing. And this comes back to what we were saying, doesn't it, LML? That this is why it takes so long for George R. R. Martin to write this stuff because he's gonna have to go back, isn't he? And slip all of this in. Once he's got the theme and the the arc established, then he has to go back and and slide in all this incidental foreshadowing that you might not spot at, at the time. I've got a couple that haven't come to fruition yet um, we might want to discuss where we think that's going in the chat. Um, my favourite is John to Aria, the "You'll be sewing all winter" quote. I love that one so much. <laughs> um, John thinks he might as well wish for another thousand uh, men and maybe a dragon or three. And then there's the dragon sign at the inn that washes away, it turns from black to red. So there's some examples of foreshadowing that haven't necessarily paid off
1: yet. I'm done. Yeah, my, my, favorite, <laughs> uh, <foreshadowing, laughs> my favorite foreshadowing that was like not super obvious at first but now is really obvious is when it says, uh, one day the other moon will kiss the sun too and crack and the dragons will return. I mean, the first time you read that, you didn't understand that that was actually a prophecy of a future moon disaster to cause the Long Night, but at this point... You know, we can all see that that's obviously coming in the next book. So good points, Gemma. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, that, was, uh, I, that was me being as straight as I could there. Um, but now to, to what you're I mean, it touches. So your point that you were, first of all, OK, so I think you just named a topic for a future between two weirwoods because we could do a great panel on foreshadowing. Uh, I think true. as you as you were talking it, it just rang out in my mind I was like whoa this is a two hour topic for sure we could talk about foreshadowings that have come to pass like you just mentioned we can talk about uh, future you know, foreshadowings potentially and get into predicting some of the winds of winter I was thinking about doing a predicting winds of winter panel uh, but a foreshadowing panel might actually make more sense and would let us give some predictions so uh, I will definitely have you on that panel Uh <laughs> Because that's 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 we got to do that. Uh, in fact, maybe we'll just get this whole group together, and after I've uh, cycled through some other people that I need to get on the show, like uh, my friend Robert from Indie Geek, and uh, you know some other folks. So, but yeah, that was great. And uh, the, what you said, the idea that he he the foreshadowing is obvious in retrospect, but when you first read it, it's not as obvious. This is something that we're gonna uh, touch on with world building because he uses that same principle where the world building is totally fantastical and amazing, but somehow slips by and notice the first time you read it because there's this really intense emotional drama happening at the same time, and he's sort of distracting you. He, or even there might be like five things going on at one time if you're talking about like the House of the Undying Vision or something like that. So... Yeah, that's a, that's a really important technique is Martin sort of holds your attention over here and then over here he's like doing something different uh, and, you know, s- sneaking the guys uh, through the back door or whatever. So, yeah, it's uh, that's uh, great stuff. And it does overlap with world building a little bit, but it's definitely its own topic. So, uh, Joe Magician, what makes George great besides uh, world building and foreshadowing? Besides
3: world building? Um, I- I'm not sure what the right word for this, but I guess you would, would describe it as the depth of the of the books, and it's—I don't just mean um, the complexity of the plot itself. I just mean that how much you can you can get out of these books if you really want to, and it keeps giving back. It keeps paying off the effort you put in. I mean, looking at the people on our panel, we have somebody obsessed with symbolism, somebody that loves history, me that loves uh, tinfoil theories, and Gemma who sort does sort kind of all three of. And we all have are passionate. We keep finding things to find in the story. I mean, there are people that only focus on things like the gender roles within it or focusing on like even just like small houses and making entire um, series out of it. it. It's unusual that the more you give to try and understand and analyze these books and the, and the world building, honestly, and even the, like the short stories in his world book, it keeps giving back. It keeps making it worth it. I, I don't think I've ever read a series where that's true. <laughs> This is maybe the first one where that's happened inevitably the author falls down or they lose interest in certain parts of the story or they really just want they really just want to tell one part of it but george has made almost a complete world much and <laughs> and, there's, and there's it's all useful too it's not like pipe weed like we see from lord of the rings or <sighs> from other authors just these, these topics that kind of go nowhere, he's, he's sharing with us and it's all productive and it all helps you understand the story if you want to.
1: I'm going to ignore that slight on pipe weed. Um, <laughs> obviously,
3: that was the weird. worst entrance to a story I've ever seen. I was like, what are you doing?
1: <laughs> Joe?" How, Joe how, let me just
3: ask you, Joe, how much weed do you smoke? Uh, not that much anymore. Last okay. time I did, I got lost right. in the woods. And I thought it was gonna die. I was at a bachelor party and I hadn't smoked in like a year or something like that. And we all got we all stood in a circle in the middle of the woods while it was raining, got got wicked baked, and decided to go find a totem pole, which is actually about thirty feet away. But it was dark, so we couldn't see it. So we were walking around for a half hour in the dark, and I was just freaking out. I'm like, Screw you guys, I'm going home.
2: (laughs) Did you see any really small houses when you were wandering around (laughs)
3: <laughs> you know, honestly, the the grass was pretty tall. Maybe there was a hobbit nearby.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> that, Joe, is where, I think, that is where I was going, yes. <laughs> I think I can explain to you, as a, as a cannabis medical cannabis expert uh, who lives in California, I can tell you that what probably happened is that you had a strain called wolf howl. Mm-hmm. And wolf howl, uh, it says right here that somewhere in the great stone maze of Winterfell, a wolf howled, the sound hung over the castle like a flag of mourning. Tyrion Lannister looked up from his books and shivered. Through the library, uh, though the library was snug and warm, something about the howling of a wolf took a man right out of his here and now and let h- left him in a dark forest of the mind, running naked before the pack. So I was not naked. I mean,
2: met- you were kind of out of your. You're kind of out of your head there. How do you know you weren't naked? You know, well, maybe um, maybe you know something happened yeah. while you were tracing
3: through the woods you know i feel like you're writing slash fiction right now is this is like what you want to have happened (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah yeah true
2: he's just
1: making the point that stoned joe magician might not be the best witness as to what actually happened (laughs) no
3: (laughs) the the main problem was the guy who was leading us had (laughs) had seen the map of the property earlier and knew where it was and was just messing with us like we were walking around the thing but none of us knew where we were Uh, okay. So, uh, sorry. I just told that whole story.
1: (laughs) No, that was actually (laughs) Joe. To be serious. That was a really good, uh, that was a really good answer. The, that's the whole point. I always compare, um, George Martin to like prog rock or classical music where like you don't get it the first time you hear it, you maybe enjoy it, but it's really not until that fifth listen that like you really start to get it. And the 20th listen might be more sweet. Um, you know, so that's, everything that makes George great lends itself to this dynamic where you can go back and find more and more stuff. And Aziz actually made a point similar to that about world building that we'll get into uh, in a minute. Mm. The The idea that you can sort of, you know, read the books one time and enjoy it, but uh, it, you know, you go back five times, there's more stuff to find every time. So Aziz, what makes George great, my friend?
2: All right. Um, well, I just want to also add on to something Gemma said, and I appreciate that she said it's really hard to find something that doesn't relate to world building because to me when she started talking about foreshadowing that's uh, she's right a uh, very right to me also though george uses history as foreshadowing quite a lot and to me that's part of the world building so i i'm not saying she's wrong obviously i just want to show just how much world building bleeds into everything like i totally get where you're coming from it's like it's really hard to pick something that doesn't involve the world building um for me uh something i think that makes george r, r. martin great is just the way he approached the 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 world, and I know that sounds like world building, but I mean the reader's experience in the world. I don't mean the world itself, which is that unlike most fantasy stories, we don't ever have a narrator. We never have a narrator who knows everything, like in Lord of the Rings and all these other things that you get the top-down view from someone who knows everything. but George tries to, even with the World Book, even with the World of Ice and Fire, that's a maester who wrote that. That's not, you know, a narrator who knows everything. So I think the that he's, the consistency of the setting, the way he approaches the material in terms of how the reader interacts with it, I think is really neat. Um, he tries to, I think that's part of what makes it a little more immersive. It gives it that extra notch above maybe other styles. It isn't necessarily better, but I think it does get you for some of us, it gets you deeper involved and you can kind of, maybe it's a little easier to imagine yourself there or to put yourself in the middle of it all, um, to get immersed. So I think that's a a really good, a really good thing. And it's not, George isn't the first one to do it by any means, but it's, he does it really well and and makes great use of that, of that technique.
1: Yeah. That was one of the topics that, Uh, I tried to touch on in like the last five minutes of our con panel on the way out the door. I was like, oh yeah, by the (laughs) way, he does an unreliable narrator living in third person and it's really cool. (laughs) That (laughs) is
0: basically what you did.
1: That is basically what happened. But it's true. I, I, I was disappointed that we ran out of time so quickly because to me that's like just so crucial to what George does. And when I read other books... And they have that, little did he know, it was the last time he would ever see his sister. Like, <laughs> this thing's just completely ruined it for me and make it super heavy-handed. And it kind of goes with George's whole thing, you know. He's He really believes in the show, don't tell. And he just takes it to the ninth degree, giving you these unreliable narrators and giving you their own inner monologue as the narrator, which may be completely wrong. I mean, the best—if you don't get it by the time you read the Victorian chapter— Uh, then I don't know what to say. I mean, it was obvious when you read Theon 1, to me. Like, when you read Theon 1, that's when you come face-to-face with the unreliable narrator, and you're like, oh, okay, I see what he's doing here, so...
2: Or Good when answer. everyone
1: looks at the comet, right? Everyone looks yeah. at the comet and
2: sees something different, right? They're all right. like, oh, that's my comet. And they're like, oh, no, that comet is the color of the Lannisters. No, that comet's the color of blood. Everyone had it. It's so cool because it's, it's like the only thing in the series that everyone got to have an opinion on because they all saw it at the same moment, which is without the Internet, you can't really have things like that <laughs> that everyone can look at at the same time, no matter where <laughs> they are, you know. Westeros' <laughs> Twitter
3: would be wild.
2: Oh. Hashtag red comet. <laughs> Hashtag red comet. <laughs>
1: Are you guys seeing this
2: thing? Look outside right now. <laughs> oh,
1: boy. Um, so, uh, Sanrixian with uh, a little super chat to say, great job so far. Go get him. Thanks, Sanri. And uh, Painkiller Jane, a frequent uh, contributor to mythical astronomy, uh, pipes in with her answer about what makes George great, and I wanted to read it. She said, critiquing the modern world is her absolute favorite. And that also strikes me as an interesting topic for a panel discussion, all the ways that George is critiquing the modern world. So nice answer there. What do you guys think about that?
0: Oh, I did a whole video on climate change, and I got absolutely slaughtered in my comments section for that one. But I stand (laughs) by it. I absolutely stand by it 100%. This is analogous. Wow,
1: I feel bad bad for anybody who doesn't get that. I mean, that's like really basic, I, yeah,
0: obvious yeah,
3: know, right? <laughs> Endless winter. I mean, nobody's ever heard a nuclear winter. It's, it's even without climate change, it's, it's a topic. <laughs> it's an easy yeah. one. Yep. I thought
0: it was and, and I like oh, how he's,
2: this is, this is something I talked about with poor Quentin on Twitter the other day, how it's not necessarily, how it's definitely part of the story, the, the, the climate change uh, analogy, but it's not necessarily part of the story in terms of the others aren't necessarily motivated by, oh, we're getting back at mankind for destroying nature. I don't think it's that. I think that's what we can sense on the surface, but ultimately I don't think it's gonna be that simple or even necessarily that at all. But it's there whether but that you can't not see that angle, even if it doesn't turn out to be like part of their motivation. Since we're not gonna learn their motivation, it's gonna be for you know, if we ever do, it won't be for another book or so. So that'll have been more than 20 years of us, you know, with this climate change analogy kind of hanging out there. So we're not going to just forget about that if it turns out that they just, it was more about, well, this was survival. Because I, I, to me, it's more about survival. Like the children were dying out and the, the or, or re, not survival, but rather religion. You know, they were, the first men were cutting down the trees, which is like, those are literally their gods. You're killing their gods. I think that's you know, that's not nature, so to speak. It is, but it's more about the fact that those are former green seers and you're killing them and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm really going on a tangent here, but you see what I mean. It's not, uh, George contains, does this multiple meaning thing. He allows us to think about climate change because he wants us to, but he doesn't even have to explicitly make it part of anyone's motivations inside the story. Although, yeah. that door is certainly open if he and, wants and to. I
0: did, I did make this incredibly clear in the video that this is just one element this is just one aspect that can be taken from this it's not necessarily part of the story as a whole and there are so many other layers to this but this is one of the layers let's have a look at it but yeah it wasn't hugely well received by some people that told me climate change was fake news which i didn't really feel was the point of the
1: video yeah. <laughs> but <it's> just me <laughs> yeah well anytime you touch on any topic that's quasi-political then you'll get the mm-hmm. the, the loud minority to you know speak up on, on either side or whatever but nevertheless uh, that's not going to stop us content creators because <laughs> we're going to say what we think and that's how it is so good job and uh, yeah so nice, nice one painkiller Jane and of course yeah he criticizes the modern world and all kinds of things And there's a lot of human sins that transcend time as well. Uh, And George loves talking about power. And power is one of those things that translates into any time. Like, for example... Uh, the way that mankind uses technology. You could look at technology as the fire of the gods, you know, or just even just chemistry, like the ability to mess with genetics and create nuclear bombs and stuff. This is something that we just stumbled upon fairly rapidly in terms of human existence. And now there's this question of what will we do with it? Will we blow ourselves up or will we heal ourselves or a little bit of both? And how's that work? And it's up to us to handle, quote unquote, the fire of the gods in a responsible way. Uh, And so that metaphor works... You know it works on a lot of levels, and of course, power and abuse of power is one of George's main topics. So, yeah,
3: anyway, it's explicit with Lyria, and um, they're 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 talking their flesh pits where they would create new animals for funsies, and how they used the amazing power of the dragons and whatever they did to the fourteen flames, and to basically enslave most of Essos. Probably a bad example of how to use uh, nature.
1: So, uh. Yeah, we'll go for uh, world's most controversial live stream ever sometime, and we'll do critiquing the modern world. That'd be fun. Uh, so, all right. Uh, so that with uh, with those f- uh, formalities and introductions uh, taken care of, we will now plunge into the main topic. Um, somebody actually had a good suggestion uh, to go ahead and start with a definition of world building. Uh, so, Gemma, you want to take a
0: stab at that? Oh, I can't really put that in a single... Say. It's a huge concept, isn't it? I mean, we could talk geographically, you know, like the maps, and we, we have entire books of maps, but it's, it's, it's far more than just the geography, the actual world. It's, it's what goes into the world, what makes the world, what makes the people, their cultures, um, their lifestyles, their day-to-day everyday business, the way they look at the world, the way they view each other and themselves, and, and all of the small nuances that have contributed to that. Um, and and I mean, I don't, I'm not gonna launch into examples yet because I know we have so many from the Song of Ice and Fire, but yeah, it, it's basically, it's it's everything that contributes to that realism. This is a fantasy. But, and we keep calling it real fantasy, realistic fantasy, don't we and and that in itself is a complete oxymoron. How can we say that something with dragons and demon vagina babies is realistic but yes <laughs> somehow <laughs> somehow it is um and it's the world building that does that it's the world building it's it's everything, absolutely everything from the huge um microcosm to to the mini small minute details
1: yeah basically it's the environment if you've got the characters as the players the world building is the stage it's everything about the stage it's how is this world going to be different from earth like that's usually how people start off with the assumption that it's an earth-like place except for we have ice demons and magic comets and magic volcanoes and what have you, what have you, George's fantasy is frequently called low fantasy versus high fantasy with high fantasy being wizards flying around and throwing fireballs and, uh, you know, more developed magical powers, low magic being sort of like as if the real world is just turning a little strange, uh, I guess, is the way I I described George Martin. So the world building is the environment. And it is a huge topic, like Gemma was saying, because it is It's everything. It's the land, it's the places, it's the culture, it's the swear words and the idioms they use. It's the way that magic works and all that. So that's why this is such a huge topic and is worthy of a whole panel. Uh, And so world building, um, here's how I'd like to start approach this is with two different George Martin quotes. All right. And the first one is the very famous quote from William Faulkner, famous author. And it says, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. And George bangs on about this all the friggin' time. He talks about it constantly. Whenever it's uh, a matter of giving advice to authors and stuff, he's always about heart in conflict, heart in conflict. And what he means is, like, it's all about the characters. If you want to engage your readers, you've got to figure out what makes the characters tick, what makes them motivated or conflicted or torn up or make what makes them love or hate. And that's where the story is. Uh, But then on the other hand, we have this idea of world building, which is kind of the opposite, or at least it's it's the other part of the book. And so here's what George Martin says about world building and fantasy in general as a genre. He says, the best fantasy is written in the language of dreams. It is alive as dreams are alive, more real than real for a moment at least, that long magic moment before we wake. Fantasy is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Reality is plywood and plastic done up in mud brown and olive drab. Fantasy tastes of habaneros and honey, cinnamon and cloves, rare red meat and wines as sweet as summer. Reality is beans and tofu and, the, and ashes at the end. Reality is the strip malls of Burbank, the smokestacks of Cleveland, a parking garage in Newark. Fantasy is the towers of Minas Tirith, the ancient stones of Gormenghast, the halls of Camelot. Fantasy flies on the wings of Icarus, reality on Southwest Airlines. Why do our <laughs> dreams become so much smaller when they finally come true? We read fantasy to find the colors again, I think, to, to taste strong spices and hear the songs uh, the sirens sang. There is something old and true in fantasy that speaks to something deep within us, to the child who dreamt that one day he would hunt the forests of the night and feast beneath the hollow hills and find a love to last forever somewhere south of Oz and north of Shangri-La. They can keep their heaven. When I die, I'd sooner go to Middle-earth. So there's this romance of um, fantasy as a genre and all the things that make fantasy fantasy, which he's describing as, you know... Glittering castles in the sky. I mean, um, but we get, at the same time we can see that both of these things are important because uh, he's always talking about the heart and conflict. He's saying it's the only thing worth writing about. So, is it is it the only thing worth writing about, or is it the dream visions of eating honeyed habaneros with scarlet sirens in Minas Tirith? And can sirens even go to Minas Tirith because they kind of need to stay near water? And anyway, so what we're here to talk about today is essentially the synthesis of the heart and conflict. And all that fantasy stuff. Uh, Martin excels at working both angles at the same time and using them to complement one another. And there's actually a lot to learn by having a look at how he does this. George has basically tricked, if you, if you guys have noticed, I mean, he's, a lot of your friends are into Game of Thrones that probably don't read fantasy. This is a real coup for George because the fantasy audience is only so big. But he has tricked all these people that aren't into fantasy into liking Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, And so if you want to write fantasy, you, and I'm speaking to you as the would-be writers in the audience, which is probably at least half of us, if you want to write fantasy or sci-fi or techno, steampunk, goth, horror, holographic, anime, and draw an audience uh, outside of the established niche audience for that genre, then you're going to need to heed Martin's advice and keep the heart in conflict at the forefront, even while you build those crystal castles in the sky. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And this is the biggest secret to Martin's world building. So uh, comments on what I just said, folks.
3: The part about um, your friends that are not into fantasy that are into it now because of Song of Ice and Fire, I think there is no bigger example than our friend Jeff or Brendan Beefish, who does not like fantasy. It's not his thing. He likes military history. He likes things like Accursed Kings. He likes stories that really toned down the magic in it and now he's at one of the most popular people in the fandom of a series that if you told him at the start of it that was actually about frozen ice elves and dragons and some kind of weirdness with like incesty stuff I think he would probably say <laughs> no <laughs> but obviously he fell in love with the early parts of the books and then of course Thanos Fell love hard with Stannis, but it's the perfect. I think he's the perfect example of what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and uh, I think that's a good. I think that's uh, very true for a lot of us. We probably all have friends that that weren't really into fantasy that got into uh, this this series because of that. Personally, I was I, I was into fantasy as a kid and had fallen out of it and was more my jam around the time I discovered A Song of Ice and Fire was other than uh, a little bit of being into, say... uh Um, Wheel of Time, which my friend had got me to start reading before I had quit fantasy, but it was still going, so I'd pick up that every once in a while. I was really into historical fiction. That was my real jam. That was my favorite kind of find an author who actually cares about being historically accurate and then writing stories. That way you're still learning some history while getting entertainment. Uh, But then I discovered this, and so many people I've shared it with have had a similar reaction whether or not they were into historical fiction. Most of them weren't. It's just they... It, it, it's because most fantasy puts the world building, uh, they almost put it first, but don't put as much yeah. care into it. You know what I mean? It's like the world, the fantasy elements are what drive the story. But in A Song of Ice and Fire, the characters drive the story and they have to imp- they have to interact with the fantasy elements. So we what we get is their human heart in conflict with itself over dragons existing and over White Walkers existing rather than, you know, oh, White walkers are a thing, and we just walk around and deal with that.
3: No, this is, you, this is a huge thing. Them. Yeah. <laughs> you can totally ignore them until basically the winds of winter. I mean, yeah. are Dance of Dragons. So uh, so I think that's awesome. Yeah.
1: A lot of people in the chat are agreeing or saying, you know, what their, you know, that fantasy is not their favorite genre and they came from X or Y genre. So, yeah, this is definitely a trick that Martin's done. And throughout this conversation, you know, this is a, between two weirwoods. Is a very meta show. It's it's basically almost a writer's workshop kind of frame on all of the discussion here because I I really just find it fascinating and I think that most of us are either writers or we're big readers and we find the whole writing process thing interesting and uh, so this whole thing of like tricking people that don't follow your genre into reading your stuff is is really cool and I think that we should assume that when George is writing, he's writing for people outside of his genre. Like, he's thinking about it that way uh, because he's very disciplined. Like, anytime he does any fantasy stuff like world-building, he follows these really strict rules so as to not let it take over the story. And I think that's why he beats it into everyone's brains about the heart and conflict because it's like the number one golden rule to all of his world-building or foreshadowing or whatever else is like, you just keep the characters always at the focus and in the center. Uh, so, it's like music um, I think it's like music like how there's a lot of people out there right. that will be
2: like I don't like country music but I like Johnny Cash you know some like how many times have you heard someone say something like that or I don't like rap but I like I don't know Eminem Drake or something M&M. yeah one. like yeah people do say that one a lot yeah uh or I don't like heavy metal but I like I don't know metallic I don't know whatever people say that kind of thing all the time and that's I think George is like I don't like fantasy except a song of ice and fire I think he's that kind of outstanding, it's, it, it transcends the genre. The quality transcends the genre. It's really good, it doesn't matter what genre it is, it's just such, such, such high quality.
0: I think it, you're so right. I think that that heart in conflict, it is the golden rule for him, and he knows that that's his golden rule, That it has to be that that's ultimately what people care about. People care about people and, and what's going on in their lives. But that second quote that you read to us just then, LML, that was a gushing love letter to the genre of fantasy i'm on board with that fantasy is my thing fantasy i love fantasy from the day i picked up a book I, I, I don't want my stories to be real and mundane i've got that in everyday life i want to go hard i want big i want flashy i want huge i want the imagination to run wild but i do have another william Faulkner quote that i'd like to read to you yeah go. For and it. it goes like this read 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 everything trash classics good and bad and see how they do it just like a carpenter who works as an apprentice and studies the master read you'll absorb it then write if it's good you'll find out if not throw it out the window and george r R. martin clearly took this advice and this is what he has done and this is what we touched upon um during our panel wasn't it this intricate patchwork quilt that he's created Um, he builds worlds but he knows what his golden rule is he never forgets that and he builds this world but he takes it from myth and legend and pop culture and other authors real world history like aziz was saying heavy metal marvel and the list goes (laughs) on you know it's and this is this is what's so awesome just one of the many things that's just so beautiful about this world building is there's there's a reference everywhere. You can if you know it, you can see it, you can find it.
1: So uh, real quick, uh, uh, Blue Tiger pipes in to tell me that in older versions of Tolkien's *Legendarium*, there are mermaids, but they are actually incarnate Maiar, Uh so they could actually go to minus Tirith. So thank you, Blue Tiger. <laughs> Thanks, Blue Tiger. coming <laughs> in with the knowledge. Uh, I just How very. That's what we call on brand. Okay, so. I just wanted to chime in real quick with another
3: series that um, that reminds me so heavily of the way George writes. It's the uh, Redwall series by Brian Jock. I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's essentially it's fantasy, but in a very different way. It's about like little forest critters acting out a medieval like battle world. There's like mice in an abbey, and there's badgers that have like prophecy, and they live in a volcano guarded by rabbits, and it's also the food porn that George loves is also there, but it's the same size kind of thing where there's a, uh, there's a, there's a POV structure. And also it really doesn't matter that the characters are like little forest animals in the same way that in a song of ice and fire, the world building and the magic stuff is all there, but you read for the characters and it's, it's the exact same kind of thing. And it's, it's more geared towards teens than adults, but it's it's a very similar and good series that I think kind of primed me for a song of Ice and Fire.
1: So so Matt, you're I noticed that you've got sort of an in the woods theme going on here today. Um you're like a furry animal stoned mm-hmm. running through yeah. the woods in your mm-hmm. mind or something. <laughs> I wish so this is why when I wish we had San Rixian, uh the hand of the dragon around to uh draw some cartoons, but Uh, We've already touched on some of these, but real quick, I'm just going to read... I made a list of sort of some of the various techniques uh, that Martin uses to world build, and then uh, we sort of added to it. And in any case, I'm going to read the first six of these, which we've already touched on, that are sort of the basics of the world building rules, and then we'll talk about them a little bit. So, number one, keep it short. As we said, don't go on and on and kill the narrative flow. Don't bore the reader. So the world building... Needs to be limited, um, and you never want to just world build. Martin never does this. Um, he always juxtabuilds uh, ju- builds, builds. That's awesome. That's a good. That actually is that works. He always juxtaposes his world building with some sort of narrative tension, and this disguises the nerdy world building uh, so that the reader doesn't get uh, feel like they're being indulged with info-dumpy world-building stuff, there's a narrative tension on, which hopefully has the reader's main attention. And then like I said, the world-building is sort of slipping by in the background. Um, and ideally, the world-building will complement the narrative in creative ways. And more specifically, we want the world-building to fit the POV of the character whose chapter we're reading. Um, we talked about this on the Nauticast, the two Nauticast episodes that I've done recently—one uh, was about Brand's coma dreams, and the other one was about Danny's chapter where she gets the prophecy of the moon's cracking, and uh, you know the dragon's eggs appear to be giving off thousand lights and all this stuff—and both of those were an example of where the the dream visions worked with the themes of the chapter, like Brand's coma visions very much are about his personal fears. He's falling and can't wake up. You know, there's a personal terror going on for Bran at that moment. Uh, And so the dream visions sort of only complement and enhance that meaning. The same thing for Danny. All her dreams about the dragons uh, have to do with her sort of becoming the dragon and overcoming her pain, becoming stronger, and becoming the mother of dragons and taking on this new identity. So it's not just... ...dreams about dragons and stories about dragons, but they're things that tie into Danny personally. So the world building's got to fit the POV, and then moving on beyond POV characters, we've also got all the minor characters. And George is very fond of talking about how every minor character of his is the hero of their own story... And so every little character, like Sir Shadrick, the Mad Mouse that we were talking about on Twitter today, for example, he's got his little backstory. And George takes a minute to think about the backstory of every character. And their, their, that backstory is basically their heart in conflict. It's whatever their conflict is. If it's a hedge knight that's down on his luck, his backstory is about how he got down on his luck and what's motivating him and making him tick in the world. And uh, I was just reading the Sansa chapters with Littlefinger in the Veil the other day, and Littlefinger's addressing this actually, like, head-on in a meta way. He's like, once you know what motivates somebody, you can move them as a piece on a chessboard. And that's basically Martin telling you about the heart and conflict. It's like, it's all about what motivates the characters. So um, I'll go ahead and stop there and turn it back over to the panel for comments build upon these points gemma you told me that i had to uh, specifically give you license to talk or you would be quiet so go ahead and pipe up gemma on, um, one,
0: yeah no I, I i'm aware that being in the uk sometimes there's a slight delay so if i jump in there i, I chances are i'm speaking over somebody and i don't want to do that your first point keep it short right keep it short I'm not 100% sure he does that, to be fair. <laughs> Look, some of his descriptions of food are pretty intense, right? Oh,
1: well, not looking okay, no. at food. Keep it short, yeah, like this. Food is, guys, Food is... an entire book.
0: <laughs> and I
3: literally
1: mm-hmm. cannot
0: read a Tyrian or a Cersei chapter without reaching for a glass of red wine. You know? It... <laughs> okay, okay, so, uh, <laughs> But... Actually, no. I know what you... have gone. <laughs>
1: I just want to clarify what I mean by that. Like, for example, the uh, the entire story about the second moon wandering too close to the sun is two paragraphs, and it comes in the middle of a chapter where they're talking about Danny and uh, sort of enduring Drogo's lovemaking slash rape, and Danny riding on her horse and all her pains and travails. And right in the middle of that, two paragraphs only we get the moon dragon myth. And then, like, the Azora high story is three paragraphs that. Salador-san tells the Davos. So that's what I mean by, like, the actual pure info-dumpy parts are actually very short, uh, <laughs> Excepting yeah, the world of ice and fire, but go on. You've
0: literally taken the words out of my mouth. This is an issue uh, of flow, isn't it? This is the way that he jumps around inside the character's minds. Um, so, for example, in the course of a chapter, you could be, say, following Tyrion on horseback. He's riding back to the Red Keep through the streets of Landing, uh, the streets of King's Landing, and that's That's where he's physically at during that chapter. But throughout the course of the chapter, we're in his mind, he'll be thinking about what's happening in that moment. Then he'll reflect on what happened earlier that day, then that week, then that month, then what he plans to do in the future, and then childhood memories might pop up. And then something he read in a book about an ancient Targaryen king from 200 years ago might remind him of something that his father once told him, And and we're just jumping around and the minds of these characters, they just flip flop. And this is how realistic internal flow works. Now, if we wanted a full picture of Tyrion's childhood, we're not going to get that in one go, are we? We're not going to get this big splurge of exposition telling us this is Tyrion and when he was born and blah, blah, blah. We're going to have to get these snippets across multiple chapters, multiple books, not even necessarily from his own point of view, but we're going to piece all that together. But yeah, essentially that's, I'm, I'm on exactly the same page of you. It's flow, it's about those small moments that jump around and just, just a sentence here, a paragraph there, and then we start piecing it all together. It's a jigsaw for us, isn't it?
1: Yeah, totally. <clears throat> and even when uh, he does go into a longer, let's say, a story about an ancient legend or something, there's always some character at the middle of it and immediately we're given some sort of drama. Like, let's look at the Azora High myth. We're told that Azor High was, he was very sorrowful. Heavy was his heart and great was his sorrow for he knew what he must do. And then he stabs his wife. So there's a lot of emotional tension going on there uh, and ostensibly a, a, some sort of heart and conflict. Uh, and so a lot of the legends, uh, they focus on a character and that allows him to then... Go into more depth with the legend, but yeah. So the the point is, it's 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 kept tightly in rain. It's not just like like I said, an info dump kind of a thing. Um, uh, unless he talks about squishers when he starts dick crap. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
2: <laughs> But uh... well, it's funny because when he has ex when he has exposition, which is rare, it stands out because it's rare. One of the more controversial scenes in all the books is the final scene we have, not counting T-Wow chapters, which is Varus explaining to Kevin who's dying. People are like, "Why would Kevin tell a dying man anything?" And tell him the a lie to him. I'm like, "Why would he tell him anything?" People use the you know, in other words, people say people sometimes say that Kevin is or virus is telling the truth to Kevin. Cause why would you lie to a dying man? But my question is why would you tell a dying man, anything the truth or a lie? It's all just kind of a little odd. Um, so it really does stand out when he does that. And that makes that, that passage get discussed. Well, also it's just a really big, important moment and it's the last thing in the last book, but it, it's a, it's the same kind of thing with uh, the way you create tension by setting patterns. Um, this isn't really a world-building thing. It's a writing thing. For example, in the series uh, Stormlight Archive, which I won't give any spoilers for, uh, but compared to A Song of Ice and Fire. There's, there's two things that they have very distinctly opposite, and neither necessarily is bad. I prefer the Song of Ice and Fire version of this, although I really like Stormlight Archive. Okay, so this is what he does. George, early in the story kills Ned Stark, kills other characters off, that gives you a sense of, oh, wow, any moment, any character can die. It gives you that tension. You have to be... uh, You don't need to be convinced that a character is in danger. You kind of just know it because of what's happened. Whereas in A Stormlight Archive, he kind of does the opposite. He has several characters die and then come back. A lot of characters die and come back. So what what ends up happening is you go... Now you have to convince me this character isn't coming back. <laughs> it's not that they, like, they're dead, but you're still not convinced. They're like, because the rules of his setting are that dead is death isn't permanent, right? So, you know, like, okay, to be fair, in Martin's world, death isn't permanent. But people who die and come back, they have consequences. They Their memories are messed up. Their bodies are unhealed. Their blood doesn't work properly. Their bodily functions don't work properly. So... It's not like the TV show where John just comes back and is like, yeah, I was dead. It sucked, but hey, now I'm fine. You know? Uh, so. <laughs>
3: also got a cool
0: haircut. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah that's all was was I'll some, see you guys
2: later. <laughs> he just lost some. He didn't lose any blood or anything. He's lost some curls. That's really all. <laughs>
1: beautiful curls. Lost a few Beautiful, lost a few beautiful inches. curls. <laughs> so, in, de- in defense of Sanderson, only because um, I, I, uh, I do. He's got a. A podcast called Writing Excuses, which is a writing podcast that I'm a big fan of. Um, even though I don't love Sanderson's writing, uh, there's certain things choices that he makes that I aren't. I'm not as much into or whatever, but I do read his books. I do like them. and um, I think I almost like his writing podcast more. But what I was going to say huh. is when you when you break a rule. So Aziz, you made a good point. So as, he's done so many. Death fake outs that death isn't believable or whatever. But it could be that when you choose to break a rule like that, that he's actually going to play on that. So that when somebody is finally dead, you expect them to come back and then they don't. And then that's a shock. And he's a very yeah, yeah. next level kind of writer. So it's possible that he's planning on doing something like that because when you break a rule, uh, like that, sometimes it's a conscious choice because you're you're then going to set a new expectation and then defy that sort of. So
2: Yeah, I, don't I think It's very fair, yeah. yeah. That is very fair. And to be fair, George
1: is backed a little
2: bit off of killing of main characters. He's mostly done it to second and third level characters, but I think that's going to change in T-Wow. I think the way he's described how brutal it's going to be,
1: that's uh, you know, he's going to show mm. us what's up. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about that. It's going to be grim. Um, so... Uh, there's two other points that sort of relate to the ones I just made, which is, um, so if we're keeping the world building limited and we're always distracting you while we're doing the world building, when you actually do do world building, you want to make it count. Uh, and you want to essentially spend your dragons wisely. You want to be like Jon Snow. And this is Stannis speaking. He said, you spend your words as if everyone were a golden dragon. I wonder how much gold do you have laid by? So essentially, this is a little bit of a meta wink by George, I think. So use your words wisely. When you go ahead and do the world building, use keywords and phrases that explode in people's minds and get their imagination starting and then sort of quickly move on without belaboring the description so that it leaves you wanting more. Like, for example, um, we were talking earlier about how George is tricking people who aren't fantasy readers into reading fantasy. Well, a lot of us are fantasy readers, Okay, like Gemma was saying, like me and Gemma are in the same boat there. We love fantasy. And what George is doing by keeping the fantasy limited, by only letting you catch these little glimpses of somebody from like around the corner as they disappear, is it leaves you wanting more. You're like, wait, wait, squishers, what? What tell me about the squishers? you know tell me about for the, real? what the doom <laughs> all the volcanoes exploded at once, well, why, how, and then, but he moves on, and so it forces you to keep reading and wondering, and as soon as you reveal all the mystery, like the kind of the fun is gone, and George knows that, and that 's why he chose not to go to a shy, for example, probably he realized a shy is more effective if we only see it in visions and flashbacks that don 't really reveal the full uh deal and then. Uh, this is actually Joe Magician's point. He talked about the slow burn. Uh, so, Joe, go ahead and make that point, if you would. This has to do a lot
3: with how he's tricked people into basically liking fantasy that normally don't. Um, the actual mechanics of his world and all the things that line up behind it, like you were talking about with, like, the squishers or, like, how the 14 flames exploded. Um, if you start off with that, if you, if you put that right in the forefront, Sanderson is uh, famous for this that his um his world building is explicit and in your face all the time. So if you really don't like that stuff, you're probably not gonna give the series a chance. It'll it'll turn you off. You're like, well I don't really care about the fact that there are like miss swords coming out of the air or this guy that is like jumping around this room in a bizarre way. But if you only have like one chapter, like we talked about with our live stream on the um on the prologue, and you show you show the others once and then they just disappear entirely it allows the reader like you guys were like you were saying being like hey what what happened with that ice elf guy thing what what's going on there and it's like goes right into basically like almost like a curse at kings for the next like two books and that's what i mean by by slow burn and it's also giving us as uh as fans more to talk about as it goes along because you can you can pick up these little clues and hints he's leaving behind him and it it increases your enjoyment of rereads and really just gives you a stronger sense of the world that there's always more to find and some writers don't create that. Some of it's very surface it's right here. You just said something. You
2: just made a Freudian slip that I think is awesome. That you should make. You should make more use of wow. in general. You said enjoyment instead of enjoyment. And <laughs> enjoyment. <laughs> oh. T-shirt. It's gonna be a t-shirt. <laughs> That's
3: right. Yes. Yes.
2: And enjoy my latest video, guys. I was to say San, San-, San on it already. I'm sure Sanrixian, Rixian, please start yeah. making that t-shirt. <laughs> it's it's probably already made. She probably heard the conversation. before I even commented. She already like had it half done.
1: Well, what's great um, is that the cartoon that Sanry drew of Joe is this like blissfully happy little like overly young, youthful kind of looking character. So it's very much an enjoyment picture already. It's, it's ready to go.
2: <laughs> Just hit print. D- Damn it! I had a second point to make there, but I totally lost it because of this joke that I had. To it was make a first. slow burn. We were talking about the sl-
1: the slow burn. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah, the slow burn is so true. There's, um, it's, it's kind of fits in with what you were saying before, how this is a character. This is about the characters, even though it's in a fantasy story. And he does that by like, first chapter. Ooh, fantasy, fantasy, whoop, nope, nope, no fantasy. (laughs) Nope, just, just characters, just a family, medieval setting. You know, there's a little bit of hint of fantasy here and there, but nope. Family stories, politics, intrigue. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, direwolves. Okay, hold on. Oh no, no, nope, 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 nope. Wait, the guy that
3: was cutting his head off, so nobody believes him.
1: Yeah. But, and <laughs> so. He, so he and he waits just long enough for you to forget about that, and then you have the scene with John finding J for Flowers and Othor, and they've got blue eyes, and you just might remember, like, wait a minute, didn't those others have blue eyes in the prologue? Or you might not, and then they come to life. And the same thing with the dragon's myth, like, he foreshadows the dragon eggs hatching early on in a Game of Thrones, then has a bunch of crazy stuff happen, Drogo dies and all this, and then the actual actual hatching of the dragons happens. You've probably forgotten about those dragon dreams by then because so much crazy shit's gone down, so... It's, it's like homeopathic
2: fantasy, you know, just like 0.1% of the... <laughs> Of the mixture, <laughs> but you know that one in there. You know it's there, even though it's a small percentage. But of course, it does grow. Obviously, by book five, there's a lot more fantasy elements, but it's still centered around the characters, even as the fantasy elements grow. It's just because he's—it's like Joe said—it's a slow burn through five. After five books, that's still a lot of burning after five books. You know, um, even though it's been burning slowly. So, and you said uh, also with your example, uh, LML about. You get like a little tidbit about the doom and you're like, I want more, I want more. And like you said, you kind of forget about it because you're just reading more and, and there's other cool things to think about. And then you get two more sentences about the doom, you know, a book later and like, oh yeah. And by the time you've gone through four or five books, there's like... Just this huge backlog of little things that you would be excited to get one more sentence about. You know, there's like a hundred things if you could just get one more sentence about it'd be really satisfying. And then you read on and you're like, oh, there's that number item number 26. I was excited to get one more sentence about and there's that one sentence. And then (laughs) 20 pages later, you get a half a sentence about something, you know, it's just it's constant.
3: Yeah. I loved how the exact conversation we're talking about happened between the kindly man and Arya where he starts telling her about the doom and going into she's like oh so like what actually happened who's the the original faces man he's like "Ah, that's not important we're talking about other stuff right now
2: (laughs) yeah George loves that device he loves the like the incredible mystery explanation being interrupted like when Mm. Sam like Sam is reading to John like that means the oldest Lord commander lived long ago he just interrupts him. He's like, yeah, it's all old. It's like, John, shut up, John. Let Sam talk, man. Let's, I, like, seriously, there's a bunch of us out there that would be like, Sam, like if a book, if a chapter started, Sam sat down to read the book. And the book started this way. And the whole chapter was just the book that Sam was reading. We'd be like, yes
3: that's
1: great <laughs> See, George and, and published
3: on natural history I would buy that so fast I don't even care <laughs> the anything,
1: anything by Kologuo Botar
0: this is this yeah, jigsaw please. isn't it that we have to put together this jigsaw because like you said they, we, we we never get the as you know John absolute <laughs> he does that to he's,
3: he's like he hey. never does that He's like, I left some notes in the gym <laughs> compendium. You know, get to him whenever you feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he does that with Danny too. Like right? Jorah
2: gives him those yeah. Jorah gives him those songs. And we're like, ooh, she still hasn't picked those damn things up. Come on, Danny, and and even George has like said in an interview that those books might be important. You know, like yeah, damn right they might. Well, hurry up with it. <laughs> Show us what those book. Danny, pick up the book already. You use you, you miss you, you, you don't you never been there except for Dragonstone as a kid, and you're really curious about your home.
0: You got books. Read those books. That'll tell you a few things.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: Something in in passing, weren't they? Just so casually. Like, oh yeah, it's like the five forts in Eastern ESOS. And then they'll just carry and you're whoa, whoa, whoa. what just hang on a minute, rewind? What but it's done (laughs) because why would they explain that when the assumption is is that we all live in this world, you know what the five forts are? But us as readers are absolutely ripping our hairs out. But it and it's and it's the pacing, (laughs) it's it's that teasing and that pulling back and that but we do have the odd chapter that's exposition heavy but he does know when to mm. leave that out i feel that those slower chapters they're like an investment in narrative tension that's because true. you know they're going somewhere you know
3: i think one way he really um going back to the keep it short part and like how efficient he is with this um he almost never has the pov be the person that's the expert in the thing, like. Yeah. Or if they do, they almost never think about it. So when you're hearing about it, you and the character are learning about it at the same time. So you're not just getting, like, pages and pages and pages of exposition of somebody that knows everything. It's somebody to making an offhand comment or uh, somebody asking, tearing about dragons. So just for, like, a few paragraphs, he goes off on about it. But then it's over with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: That's what, and Melisandre's chapter is such a huge surprise for that reason because we are yeah. all like, George, for long ago, he said, he's like, oh, you're not going to get POVs from characters who no know too much. You're not going to get in Littlefinger's head. You're not going to get in Varis's head. You're not going to get in even Stannis' head. So I think most of us assumed that Melisandre was in that category. So when she had a chapter, and apparently she's got at least one chapter in The Winds of Winter, we were all like, woo. And that's a great thing that he did, right? He, he set us up for that. We were not expecting a chapter from her, and so that made it an awesome surprise when we actually did uh so she knows about as
0: much as Jon snow
3: (laughs) (laughs) it turns out she doesn't actually know that much she is basically explain glamours kind of
1: (laughs) so real quick i just want to say uh thanks for the super super chat steven stark and we'll catch you later he's got to run and uh misty 306 says fire and blood will give us a ton of hints of what to expect in t wow and a dream of spring am i right and I would say yes, and not only yes, but uh, the princess and the queen also gave was doing a lot of laying groundwork for the dragon battles to come. In my opinion, uh, I think George wanted to give us some context for what dragon battles are like before he shows Danny invading Westeros, uh, because if you look at the dragon battles in the princess and the queen, they all go bad. Every one, uh, there's never any winners. It's most of the dragons and riders die horribly, and it's generally a mistake to take them into battle. So I think he really wanted to cut against this idea that, like, well, if you have dragons, you just ride out and you win, and it's easy. Field of fire, that's all there is to it. Uh, like the field of fire was effective, but um, you know, as soon as there's a dragon on each side, it becomes a mess. And so, I believe there's a lot of groundwork laid in the princess and the queen, and I'd expect more of that to come in fire and blood. Would you guys agree?
0: Yeah, 100,
3: absolutely. Yeah, also, in the uh, the, the yeah. short story, the ice dragon, the the dragon battle in that is exactly the same. Everybody, everybody's the worse off for having done it.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite traumatic that one, isn't it? Really, the way she just runs off and leaves. Oh. Spoilers in case nobody's read it, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's traumatic, it's beautiful and poetic, but it's really sad. Mm. Nobody wins, like
1: you said, nobody wins. Yeah, so so he's he's definitely doing, and obviously, that the world of ice and fire is full of that stuff. There's a ton of stuff in there that he wanted to give us before the next book. I mean, the whole series of episodes that Aziz and I did on the great empire of the dawn and the Danes and Ashai, uh, the whole idea that ancient dragon lords before. Valyrians existed in a shine whether they're the great empire or not and then that that the fact that they came to Westeros this is a really important thing that we need to key in on before the next two books and that's why he gave it to us. I think it's perhaps the most important piece of information in the world of Ice and Fire is the fused stone fortress on Battle Isle and all the information that goes with that because it's the whole point like like we harped on a bunch of times the Azor High Fable and all the lightbringer stuff is from a shy, and why does it matter if the story is about Westeros and the Starks? And the answer is that the dragons have tangled with Westeros and the Starks before, and that is what the Long Night mystery is all about. And so, yeah, he uses these supplementary books, and the same with Duncan Egg, uh, with Bloodraven information. We're going to talk about Bloodraven and the world building that they do, uh, that he does with Bloodraven and the Blackfires. So that's another example. Uh, anyways, okay, so let's move on. Uh, some other techniques that George Martin uses that we're going to talk about. He uses world building to foreshadow. And of course, Gemma kind of talked about this already, Um, but uh, they're often one in the same. Uh, When he's giving you old myths about, for example, the second moon wandering too close to the sun and cracking to pour forth dragons, that's important because at the end of that book, Danny, the moon of Drogo's life, is going to hatch dragons. And so it's not only a myth, and it's not only world-building, it's also foreshadowing. Uh, I mentioned the idea that Kat um, gives us the story of Durin God's Grief and the building of Storm's End while she's on the way to, at, to that parlay with Stannis and Renly when both of them will be super-stubborn. <laughs> And the whole thing about Durin's God's Grief is that he's really fucking stubborn. And so telling you that story right before that parlay greatly enhances the characters of Stannis and Renly at the parlay. And I might be screwing that up. It's it's in one of those chapters where Kat is down there visiting Renly. I forget if it's like before she meets Renly or if it's before they go to the parlay itself. But it's it's somewhere in the mix and the point uh, remains. So using world building to foreshadow. Um, and then, so moving on, uh, in that first quote, uh, George Martin was talking about fantasy and the first line, he was talking about the language of dream and the language of dream is really important. Uh, we talked about this in the Nauticast episode where we went over Brand's coma dream vision and all of everything that's happening is these short clipped sentences. You don't get long descriptions. Uh, it's very confusing when you're in a dream Nothing really makes sense totally. The seams of reality are very fuzzy. One scene might morph into the next. We're seeing things in symbolic representations like a three-eyed crow taking corn from Bran's hand. Obviously, the corn symbolizes like Bran's life force or his seed or something like that, so... Everything is drenched in metaphor. There's a lot of stuff happening going on. Bran is falling. He's terrified. There's a crow. It's got three eyes. It's talking about this memory that he has of Jamie. He's seeing visions of dragons in the heart of winter. All of this stuff is happening at the same time. And the reason why it works is because he uses the language of dream. The language of dream essentially allows you to maintain the mystery of something like a shy or the three eyed crow. Uh, if he's just, if Bran was describing it in a waking consciousness, it would strip some of the mystery from it. Uh, but because it's coming at you in these almost incomprehensible visions and fragments, uh, it, he's allowed to do world building in a way that isn't heavy handed and obtuse. So that's the language of dream. And a lot of times the world building actually comes in dreams and visions itself. Um, but even when it doesn't, he still uses that sort of dream language. So, um, comments? Another another way that pattern
2: holds up, if we can call it a pattern, it's more of a technique, but I'm calling it a pattern here because uh, like I've done with several other areas of his work, um, you notice when he does something differently, when he breaks that pattern, it stands out. So that's why I'm calling it a pattern. For example, so very often, he, the way he includes world building in his chapters is just in a way that you would find to make sense. Like if someone's, like say Davos is at White Harbor. And so you, he gets thrown in the, uh, in the Wolf's Den. So we get the history of the Wolf's Den. That makes sense, right? That's, uh, it all fits very nicely, but there's occasionally, uh, that, that pattern is broken. For example, when Tyrion is heading North, with Benjen and John to go see the wall for the first time, he thinks about Targaryen history. He thinks about the field of fire and the dragon skulls underneath castle or underneath the red keep, which is not related to where they're at at all. They're walking around the countryside in the North and he's thinking about dragons. So that's, so that is really interesting when he kind of breaks from that pattern. Of course, this is one of the earliest chapters, so it's not necessarily the, the pattern isn't necessarily established. It. This is kind of something you notice on a reread really. Um, but it's st- it's really cool. And you and you wonder, well, why is he doing that? And well, in retrospect, it has a lot to do with the fact that he's talking to Jon Snow. He's talking to Jon about, you know, there's like a little heritage stuff mixed in there, ice and fire stuff. So you've got the surroundings of ice. So he's got to mix in the dragon stuff. And some of that might actually relate to Tyrion, too. But obviously, mostly it's about Jon, if not entirely about Jon. So that's just really neat, the way he, he mixes the history in in a way that is kind of puzzling. But then you're like, oh, it's not puzzling at all. It's just, like, right down the middle. But it wasn't so obvious, because that's, like what, like, the 15th chapter of the entire series. So hardly anything is, like, really well settled by that point.
3: I also really like the... The perspective from Bran, I think, while well, he's warging summer, and he sees the dragon come out of Winterfell, and this is what we're talking Ooh, about, yeah. with, like the language of dreams. It's like, was that real? Was that fake? Was did Bran see that? Was that a vision? And it asks all these interesting questions. And especially when you consider that we're that we're starting to get more information about John and maybe being a Targaryen at this point, it's like, well, dragon and Winterfell, and then there's the story about from uh, how they think there's actually a dragon under Winterfell heating the the. Um, the hot springs, and it's all these weird little things that don't make sense in the moment. But on a reread, you can go back and start piecing together. It's like, wow, he's been talking about the tar- like dragons in Winterfell for a long, long, long time, but it's it's all quick and it's not heavy-handed, and you don't even notice it. Gemma,
0: yeah, he does this with symbols and, and motifs and themes as well, doesn't he? This is what Aziz was saying, made me think of this. And um, that he establishes these very firm patterns that these are the symbols of this book, these are the motifs. We've got the Iron Throne is a symbol, the direwolves are a symbol, um, themes are love versus duty, facing hard truths and, and birds, um, like LML mentioned, that's, that's a motif, a hand side to the outsider, that kind of thing, and he establishes those. This is the pattern and he sticks with these and we can get through several books and these are still there. But then every now and again, he just throws in a new one and it becomes a new thing and it sticks out. that the comet, um, the chaos of war is introduced in *A Clash of Kings. And it's just so prominent and so obvious that this is a new thing that's been brought in because it, it breaks that pattern that's been previously established. And and it's really clever because it really brings like the, the initial area chapters in a clash of kings. It's really brought forward that the impact that this war is having, and obviously relates to the title of the book. But he's still on the original themes and symbols that he's he brought in. He sticks with those. It's like he knows what he started with, and he's he's going to see it through to the end. But he gives us new ones along the way as well.
2: Well said. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say just less about world building, but another example just randomly popped in my head of, of George breaking a pattern that really stands out is um, I was just on uh, Indie geek stream and we talked about horns and there's that Victorian chapter where it just, at the end of the chapter, it just suddenly isn't his POV anymore. It just jumps yeah. to the, the crew and it's like, whoa, that's really something. And it's and the effect is really enhanced by the fact that something dark Magical is happening in there. It vaguely reminds us of Danny's uh, giving birth because you hear like the weird sounds coming from instead of the tent, it's the the whole the cabin that Victorian's in there with the dusky woman and and, and uh and so that's just yeah, like that's not even that's not even world building. That's just uh, you know doing something different to really catch our attention and it really working, um, especially because Victorian's chapters are like you read his point of view and it's interesting, but it's also he's a a dumbass that George just flat out said that
3: (laughs) You know? As dumb as a so, stump, I think is the quote.
2: <laughs> yeah, dumb as a stump. So you go from, and George writes him really well. I'm impressed with how well he writes a character who's dumb as a stump. That's not easy to do. Like, George, when George writes Tyrion or Sam, I love it, but I get the sense that it's a little easier for him because he says he's got things in common with these guys, you know? So it's a little little closer to writing about himself. But George is nothing like Victorian in real life, you know? So like, that's, <laughs> he's really got it just like, well, what would it be like if I was as dumb as a stump? really violent and grew up in this culture and he does a great job of it and then yes, yeah, so and then when the narrative changes like that it's like
1: whoa hold on hold on what's going on here this is cool okay so hey uh painkiller jane uh to bring things back on topic of world building um thanks so painkiller jane says that martin's physical world building landscaping architecture etc is a wonderful foreshadowing tool he uses he pours in the cultural traits into these to bring the people to life vividly. And uh, good comment, and it, it really called to mind a specific chapter from A Storm of Swords, uh, Sansa, which I've been reading all the Sansa chapters lately, because my next episode is going to be the long awaited Veil Vale-slash-Sansa episode of Moons of Ice and Fire. Uh, in any case, check this out. This is, uh, notice how the Eerie itself um, contributes to... The appearance of Lysa Tully, all right? Sansa walked down the blue silk carpet between rows of fluted pillars slim as lances. The floors and walls of the high hall were made of milk-white marble veined with blue. Shafts of pale daylight slanted down through the narrow arched windows along the eastern wall. Between the windows were torches mounted into high iron sconces, but none of them were lit. Her footsteps fell softly on the carpet. Outside, the wind blew cold and lonely. "'Amidst amidst so much white marble, even the sunlight looked chilly somehow, "'though not half so chilly as her aunt. "'Lady Lysa had dressed in a gown of cream-colored velvet "'and a necklace of sapphires and moonstones. "'Her auburn hair had been done up in a thick braid and fell across one shoulder. "'She sat in the high seat watching her her niece approach.' her face red and puffy beneath the paint and powder. On the wall behind her hung a huge banner, the moon and falcon of House Arryn in cream and blue. Sansa stopped before the dais and curtsied. My lady, you sent for me. She could still hear the sound of the wind and the soft chords Marillion was playing at the foot of the hall. So, I mean, Martin literally uh, hands off from the description of the cold, eerie, and the cold sunlight to not as cold as Lysa. And then it's just like right seamlessly into the description of Lysa. So this is exactly what Painkiller Jane was talking about, where the description of the place makes the character really pop. And he does that all the time. And uh, it almost would seem heavy-handed, but it's, don't be afraid to do this. I mean, this is fantasy. It's supposed to be, again, azure and lapis lazuli and stuff. And even using the sapphires here makes you think of the others, as, as well as the milk-white-veined-with-blue thing because obviously the blood uh, the others have blue blood and stuff so it's yeah it's pretty good add another hundred feet to that wall just do it
2: <laughs> whatever <laughs> whatever you're making add another have a second
1: helping couple super chats real quick uh kelly morlock says she's really enjoying everyone's intelligent discussion and passion for a song of ice and fire sending some love thanks kelly and mandolin 523 says always Thank you all for your contributions. Great content. Keep saying the slow burn flickering and keeping the slow burn flickering. I appreciate you all and cannot tell you enough. So thank you guys. And thanks uh, everyone in the chat with great comments. Uh, we are hovering around 190 watchers and I bet if like a few of you go and share this link on social media, maybe we'll get up to 200. But I am s- super grateful for that, uh, that amount of attendance. That's awesome. So thanks guys. Um. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll get a wig. I try to keep the wigs to the mythical astronomy stuff because see, this is between two Weirdwoods is a very serious show. We're kind of like an NPR thing, you know. We got the <laughs> we go guitar super and very serious. Uh, <laughs> <super> serious. <laughs> yes. yes, we 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 talk about
2: weed, uh, pipe weed, <laughs> and enjoy. Very <laughs> serious. Oh, God how much we, Sorry, I did that wrong. It's how much we enjoy pipe weed. That's right.
3: There you go. How <laughs> <Too> much? <laughs> Oh. Stay out of the dark woods when you smoke.
0: I did have a point, but you've disrupted my flow now. <laughs> uh,
1: it, it was probably about that passage of the chilly sunlight and the Sansa stuff. Is that jogger memory?
0: Oh, yeah, no. Um, I was thinking um, the, the comment that was made about... Um, the, the buildings and the environment um, this also works with the abandoned settlements doesn't it that John sees beyond the wall Danny visits this uh, strange abandoned dead and decayed village and um aria as well in the riverlands this is um, throughout a clash of kings and it's and it's like it, it's it's thematically showing you again this chaos of war that I was speaking about earlier on but in the same breath, it's world building and it's teasing us with these hints that here's something that went down. I'm not gonna tell you what it was, but it did. And it was really macabre and gruesome, but moving on swiftly and you're like, but, but why, is, why are there skulls that have been bleached white by the sun? Who were these people? What did they do? What was their culture? But we get none of these answers. So it's, it's world building, it's foreshadowing, it's, Themes and symbols, it's its everything all wrapped into one, and it's a big, massive tease, like you said earlier on, LML, it just gives us just enough to keep us wanting more and more, all the time.
1: Cool, so, um, well, uh, this isn't exactly going uh, along the schedule that I thought it would, I thought that everything <laughs> we had done up till now would be like half an hour, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then we'd go into to exa- more specific examples, but whatever, it's been great, so that's fine. But we do have uh, some specific examples of world building uh, set aside to sort of mention and demonstrate uh, how he how does this so efficiently. So the uh, first one that I want to start with is the, the moon media theory.
0: <laughs> the whole thing I've never heard, heard that one
1: before? <laughs> no, I don't need to explain it, y'all already know the moon media theory um, no, what I'm, I actually already made most of the points I want to make which is why I brought this up just so I can sort of uh, see what I'm saying so we get, it's based on four different things it's based on, and this is like my entire moon media theory the, the crux of it is based on four instances of raw world building there's the original Old man's story about the others the Last Hero, and The Long Night. There's the Carthine myth about the second moon wandering too close to the sun and pouring forth dragons. That's about three paragraphs. The uh, the story of the others in The Long Night is about three paragraphs also. Then there's the Lightbringer myth in A Clash of Kings that Salador's son says to Davos. That's about three paragraphs. And there's the Melisandre prophecy of Zorahai being reborn under a bleeding star. Uh, and that's only one paragraph. And that's it. So between those bits and pieces of world building, you can figure out that there's two myths talking about a moon cracking, that dragons and comets have something to do with each other, and that the long night is tied to something about the moon cracking and comets and dragons coming from a moon that cracks some or something. And from that, you can basically put together the beginning of the theory, which is that some shit went down in the sky. There were some meteors that rained down and that is what caused the darkness of the long night And you can start to think about dawn and uh, being made from a fallen star, which is also like two lines of dialogue. Literally, dawn is made from the heart of a fallen star. That's it. No other explanation. And then you can start to be like, oh, wait a minute. Dawn sounds it's a glowing sword made from a meteor and you can start to run wild with it. So this is all efficiently done in the first like two books in three paragraphs, one paragraph at a time. So that's I just wanted to highlight that because it's super efficient. Um, and, uh, what's really fascinating is the first instance, which is the old Nan story about the others and the last hero. I reread this whole chapter uh, a couple days ago and it blew my mind the effectiveness of the world building here. So let me just walk you through this chapter really quick. Um, I made notes here that'll just go through bullet by bullet. So it starts with Bran who's just awakened from his coma in like the last chapter or two. So he's up in the tower He's alone, he's crippled, he's sitting in the bed, he's hanging out with old Nan, and he's watching Rickon run around in the yard and play with the wolves, and he's watching people train in the yard and do all the stuff that involves walking. Which you can't do anymore. Uh, yes, Uh-oh. and there's, there's, your, there's your requisite LML pantomime.
0: So, <laughs>
1: the first thing we get is the heart and conflict. Bran is a crippled boy who wanted to be a knight, and now he can't walk. So already this is jerking tears from us. And he doesn't want to hear stories from old Nan, and old Nan sarcastically offers to tell him a story about a kid who didn't like stories. That's where it's at, okay? So then she offers to talk about Brandon the Builder, and she's like, oh, those were always your favorite, Brandon the Builder. And then Brand goes on a little inner monologue, one paragraph, and he's like, oh yeah, Brandon the Builder, he built Winterfell and perhaps the wall and so that's world building there. You're like, oh, Brandon the Builder built the wall and Winterfell. But then he quickly says, those weren't my favorite stories. I don't like those stories. So you're you're right back to the heart in conflict and the idea that Bran is now arguing with old Nan, which we've never seen before. So this is distracting us from the world building. Then she's like, well, perhaps you'd like a scarier story about the others in a long night. And then he's like, well... Yeah, I, well, yeah, I, I do like those. And so then we get the long night last hero story. And that's about only, again, three paragraphs. And it's it's very dramatic. It's entertaining. So it's actually world building, but it's super entertaining. And then it's interrupted because uh, Tyrion has just arrived back from the wall and he's passing back through Winterfell. Then we get the scene where um, Rob lays his sword out across his lap and he's too harsh to Tyrion. And the wolves come out of the shadows and sort of scare him and knock him down. And then he offers the saddle. So again, we're right back to heart and conflict. Bran's the, the theme of the chapter that we started with. Bran can't walk. Tyrion's now offering help. Uh, this situation is also super conflicty because we empathize with both Tyrion and the Starks at this point in the book. And so George is putting these two people that we like and having them fight with each other. So our, we're conflicted and the characters are conflicted. Then uh, we get, following that, uh, we get the news that Benjen is missing. And that's more hard and conflict stuff because Rob and Bran are very upset about it. And then Bran ties the last hero myth that we got earlier in the chapter back by saying, oh, well, the children of the forest, they help the last hero, they'll help Benjen. And so now we're given this really important clue about the last hero that he was helped by the children of the forest, which many people have made many theories about. Uh, But it's tied into the drama of the story of Benjamin being missing. So there's a lot of the elements that we talked about earlier on display in this chapter. And it's like, not only do we get the last hero story, we also get a little bit more Brandon the Builder world building. Uh, We get stuff about the others in the last hero and all of it is framed inside of Brand's heart in conflict. So I just thought that was like a stupendous example of the stuff we're talking about. And this is again, halfway through the first book. So Martin was already good at this and only got better as time went on. So I'll, I'll uh, pass it back to you guys with that.
2: That's a really good way to put it. And um, a really good uh, kind of rounded out uh, way of breaking it down. I touched on this a little earlier um, with like kind of how he does a has a pattern in some of his chapters with the way he uses world building. And of course it's, it's not a hard and fast pattern. Not every chapter follows this pattern, but you see this, this structure loosely speaking quite often, which is uh, using the North remembers chapter Davos as an example, because this is a chapter I've paid particular attention to in a lot of ways. It starts off with, where is Davos? Ah, he's at the Wolf's Den. Okay, what's the Wolf's Den? World building, world building, world building. We, we, we learn about the Wolf's Den. And then the most of the chapter from there is resolving that. He interacts with this setting that we've now, he's bear, he's interacted with a little bit. Now that we've gotten a full history on it, it's the re, the, the major interactions come. He has a conversation with Sir Bartimus. He thinks about how he's going to die. And uh, that's the conflict you know, with himself, uh, how he's got to say goodbye to his family and write a letter to his wife and, and do all this other stuff and lament his choices, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, it gets surprising. Things happen, different things happen. But all throughout that, you've got the same world-building elements. You've got stuff that was before that chapter. We learned about White Harbor and who the Mandalis were long before that chapter, so there's a lot of uh, buildup already, a lot of things that we didn't necessarily know where they were going like we didn't know that the Manderleys would be important, you know, in a, in the way that they are back in books one, two and even three. They hadn't really done a whole lot, but it all. But it makes sense that, oh, of course, White Harbor, it's one of the few f- cities in the entire uh, in all of Westeros. And it's in the north. It's where the most the people are. Of course, it makes sense that someone would eventually go there and interact with the setting and then we would learn more about it. And uh So it's another, that's a perfect example. He's in conflict with himself, the heart, his heart in conflict because of where he is. And while he's there, he naturally thinks about this place that he's in and uh, we get information about it. Um, And another thing I want to point out, just as an aside to all that, something that's been percolating in my mind is just how, just the evidence of of how we as fans respond to his world building, Uh, which is that just from my own experience as a creator um the two the most popular videos that we've ever done were about the battle of ice and the battle of fire which that makes sense it's uh, it's what's coming people want to know about the winds of winter and the most exciting stuff is in material we haven't gotten yet in a lot of ways but the next most popular things are like the Ashai video and great empire of the dawn stuff that's all basically mostly world building right like Ashai is important but it's mostly world building right it's we're like like David said, we're not going to go to Ashai. We might get some flashbacks of it, but Ashai itself, the place, isn't as important as the things that came from it that are impacting characters thousands of leagues away. And uh, but we're still really fascinated by Ashai, even though we all know it has very little to do with the story. So I think that's just um, awesome. it just proves how George has managed to capture our imagination on things that we know aren't quote-unquote important to us they're important because we like them and that makes them important but so important you know kind of means different things in this context but i think y'all get the gist of that
1: yeah it makes it's way more important that shy i'm I'm sorry joe magician i'm sorry but we've reached 205 viewers oh my god and uh, we've got to give the people what they want which is apparently raygarth barbarian as sanrixian has named (laughs) just look so uh, yes, uh, but uh, by all
3: means, carry on with your very serious uh, I was gonna say, <laughs> God, those wow. words. How, uh, how can we know?s uh, it's, it's more important that a shy exists as a place and what it means for the background of the story than what it actually is. Like I'm sure like the streets of a shy are not as interesting as the fact that it symbolizes this great fallen empire and what it means for especially like characters like the Danes. And I was gonna. I wanted to talk about your um, example of the Wolf's Den really quick. Just the name itself—how clever world building that is. He names it the Wolf's Den. Here so instantly, you're thinking, well, not only is this a Stark place, but this is a safe place for the Starks. That this is that whoever owns this place probably has their best um, their best intentions at heart. No, and then you start to see like the man, like from Manderley, it looks like he's going to kill Davos and all this stuff. But in the back of your head, creating more of a conflict using world building, you're like, but it's named the, the Wolf's Den. How could somebody who owns the Wolf's Den in this world be somebody that would do something this horrible that would side with the Lannisters in the phrase? And it ends up paying off within the same
1: chapter. True that. Uh, Gemma, we're getting some comments about your uh, hair blowing gloriously in the wind. So I just wanted to relate those to you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And also uh San Rixian has uh offered uh kindly offered a fifteen percent discount over at Sanrixian.com. You can use the code LML and get fifteen percent off any shirt. So run on over there. You can surely buy a t shirt and still listen to the stream at the same time. Good deal. You can Good deal. Get this cool yeah, North Remember shirt, stuff. or you can get the cool Eanna t shirt. And uh yeah. We're all waiting for the uh and Joe and Joe Pipeweed shirt.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> really I'm
3: not sure I want to see the picture for that.
1: We we, much <laughs> we, we a new San Rixian t shirt every time we live stream at this point. Uh, so, all right, uh, cool. So very cool example. The Wolf stand I love the Wolf stand The world building there is exceptional. And uh, you know, there's. I listened to the chapter right before Davos gets to the Wolf Den uh, yesterday. And uh, this is the one where he actually ends up on Sisterton, on Sweet Sister, and this is a really cool chapter for world building because we haven't heard from Davos since the Storm of Swords. And the chapter opens with Martin's standard in late, out early technique. It starts off with Davos marching from the damp, dank prison at Sweet Sister up to speak to Lord Borrell, who's the guy that has the web fingers, and he basically is an up jumped pirate lord. Uh, ruling uh, sweet sister. And so as Davos, all that physically happens in the chapter is that Davos walks from some point in between the prisons and the palace to the palace and have a, has a conversation with Lord Burrell. That's it. That's all that happens in this chapter. But what actually happens is you get the entire story of what happened to Salador San's fleet after they left the wall. There was the storm, 29 ships blown apart, Some landed on Skagos with the horny goats, and some will never be seen again, and some are down in Davy Jones' locker with the Sea Dragons and the Merlin King and whatever. And then we get the story of uh, the the Three Sisters, how they've been fought over by the Eerie in the North, and the rape of the Three Sisters is the name of something that happened there, apparently, that sounds really awful. We get the the idea that the, the Three Sisters have been haunts of pirates and smugglers for centuries and centuries. We then start to hear a little bit about the Wolf's Den and the Manderlys. We actually get the first part of the story about how the Manderlys were evicted from the Reach... And how the Northmen took them in and took their gold but let them keep their silver. And they set themselves up to be rich lords on the mouth of the Mander. That whole story is in this chapter. We even get a little bit of mythology where we get the whole lord of the skies, lady of the waves, duality that the Sisterton people believe in. The mark of the Borels, which implies them as fish people. So there's a little squisher talk. All of this happens in this chapter. But Martin does the world building so smoothly that it's like... I mean, if you if you set out a writing exercise to do this, it would be ridiculous. It's like write a chapter where the only action that happens is a guy walks up some steps and then has a conversation with somebody and put do all these things at the same time and put all this information in there. So I invite you guys go back after this episode and re-listen to that chapter and just sort of like notice all the world building and notice how smoothly he does it and notice the techniques that he uses to do it. So it's really great. I want to add to that too, because th- there's something in that particular
2: chapter that really gets me that I think is awesome. And it's, it's, it's slightly, it's, it's world building, but it's really, really small detail, which is, and it's something that, because like you said, there's, this chapter is all mostly conversation. He walks from the, the prison to the castle or whatever, um, but he also describes that he's wet and cold and he has that bowl of stew, the sister stew, that just sounds really, really delicious. And it, and Davos, the way Davos describes when he's eating it, it's like filling him and making him warm from the cold. And that's something that almost anyone can relate to, you know, and um, a lot of stuff that happens in the story we can't relate to all that much because it's the setting is so different. And, uh, you know, we don't have swords and dragons in our world. Well, we have swords, but we don't have them all over the place. And, uh... <clears throat> Any just anyone can kind of uh connect with a hot bowl of soup on a cold rainy day. I mean, that's just you know, in the midst of all this kind of fantastical history and all this war and stuff that it, you know is very alien but awesome, you get this 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 thing that feels very familiar, and I think that's like that. It's kind of like an anchor to, to normalcy, and I think that's really good. And I think that's it, maybe that's not appropriately called world building, but I think it is because it's the soup is. Very specifically tied to the location, you know, it's a it's a fish chowder made on an island that subsists on fishing. It just, uh, yeah, it makes sense.
1: <clears throat> so, yeah, and that's actually another great thing is so that whole bit with the soup is. A great example of world building because it's called Sister's Stew, and it's this hearty stew. But he gives this dissertation about the different kinds of crabs that are in there. He's like, well, I won't eat spider crabs except for in Sister's Stew. And he points to his sigil, which is a spider crab. Uh, But the spider crabs look a lot like the white ice spiders. And so there's actually a whole tinfoil theory been spawned about the spider crabs and the others Based largely on this passage and a couple other passages, uh, Joe's Joe's like, oh, tinfoil. I haven't heard of. <laughs> yep. Based on the... Snow, Joe's well, going to start
2: it, paying there. more attention to the food descriptions now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, the the spider the you spider is like so good. Yeah. Well, I'll explain it to you later, but it's it's pretty good stuff. In any case, even the the sort of most relatable thing in there, which is this hearty su- you know, stew. Um, has, like, interesting world-building, because it's even implying uh, Borel as a fish person, because he's like, I feel such an affinity with these crabs of my sigil that I literally won't eat them. Uh, so I just thought that was kind of funny and amusing and endearing and... Well, it's also because
2: of how much, you know, Westeros, Westeros identifies with their sigils and how, like, Lyria talks about how, yo, you Westerosi take your sigils so seriously, you know, but, uh, and how, like, but that's, bit, but it's true. It's part of the culture. Westeros, like, everyone identifies with their sigil animal or whatever they, like, because their father did and their grandfather did and their grandmother did and all these people. It's, it's pretty ingrained and that, and that's world building, right? That's just the culture that exists in Westeros is people identify with those. They take that stuff seriously. They're, it's like following a sports team. <laughs> <laughs> but it's part of, your, but it's in your family for thousands of years. Instead of you know, I like this team.
0: <laughs> I love that we can get entire tinfoil theories literally from a single sentence within these. This text. <laughs> it, it, it's 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 Im- it's incredible, really. Um, you guys have got such great, very specific examples of world building there. I I'd, what I'd really like to do um, is is basically to reel off a broader spectrum. Um, This is almost a list of things that I jotted down last night. I was thinking about this and I jotted down something and then I went and watched Netflix and then, Oh yeah, there's this. And I came back and I jotted something down and this just went on all night long because things just kept popping into my mind. And it's all these little things.
1: Yeah. uh, Take over, take it over, do it. Give us us a full rundown.
0: Okay. Um, It's everywhere. It's, every sentence, it's every word, it's every passing mention, every fleeting thought, it's the unusual flower with the strange scent and the unusual colour that we later discover was used to create a poison that killed a king at his wedding Um, it's the culture of a particular religion and that lends itself to the characters that come from that particular region um, such as the nightly traditions of the Reach and House Tyrell and we're getting an idea of the kind of characters that we can expect from that region um it's i mean I've, I've googled is lamprey pie a real food for example you know this is the thing <laughs> this is the things that we end up doing um i've done comparative analysis of the wall and real life skyscrapers i'm sure you all have comparing the heights to see if this is if this is I can see Joe has done this. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <judge.
3: laughs> I, I like it when the scientists talk about, like, how the wall is impossible, and they're, like, talking about the physics of it. That's where I hear about it.
1: <laughs> and George is like, uh, magic. Uh, George is just like, yeah, I probably made it too high. Anyways, next subject. Yeah,
0: he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> but anything that turns out to not be real in this world, it, it does have a foundation. It's got a basis somewhere, hasn't it? It's got a reference that we can unearth um the black goat of cahor um that's lovecraftian and back on the pale child wildfires Great fire valerian steel damascus steel um westeros has got its own black death it's got the great spring sickness um it's the style of clothing like Daenerys wears the dress that has her breast out and that forwards the um character of joro and that whole kind of friend zone relationship that they've got going because she realizes He's not exactly maintaining eye contact at that particular moment in time. But the world building's there because it's the culture of the dress and the style. Um, It's jewellery that then becomes a weapon. It's the weapons and the armour of different cultures. Um, I've got so many on this list. Um, What I do have um, is a lot of nicknames. I love the nicknames of the characters. And and that itself, because they're not, not, I'm not talking about titles, I'm talking about nicknames. I'm talking about Barristan the Bold, the Hound, the Old Bear, Great John, Small John, the Blackfish, the Red Viper, the Mountain that Rides. Stick some in the comments if you can think of any, because I have a very small list here Brienne the Beauty, Raph the Sweetling, the King Beyond the Wall, the Lightning Lord, Lord Too Fat To Sit a Horse, Kingslayer queen of thorns dragon knight young wolf the imp the mad king the spider dark star haven't even started on Arya, and this just goes on and on and on there's hardly a single character there's one Sam the Slayer. there's hardly a single character in this series that doesn't have at least two names at least can you think of any more guys
3: uh they no. call <laughs> lord snow quite a lot mockingly but it ends yeah. up happening
0: Yes, of, ex- exactly. They end up More coming shadowing. true
1: quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, Lirio's got some good names. Uh, Yellow Rotting Sea Cow uh, is one of my favorite <laughs> ones. Um, Child Snow Knight. <laughs> Child Snow Knight. That's a good uh, one. There That's you go. Uh, so real quick, I just want to say that Painkiller Jane just dropped the link to Evil A's Spider-Crabs theory, which she's not even sure that she believes in anymore, but it is a good <laughs> write-up. So, Joe, Magician, if you're curious, it is in there in the chat. Just, awesome. Uh, some good like, reading. Yeah, about for
2: your for your future enjoyment,
1: I'll be here so, all the week. <laughs> so Gemma, carry on.
0: Yeah, I've got a couple more. Um, something that sprung to mind was, and you'll like this one: is the constellations. The fact that not only are there constellations in this world, but they have names. But George o. Martin doesn't even stop there. He gives the same constellations different names depending on what culture is looking at them. And then we have a whole situation where John and Igret are having a conversation and it's so telling about their relationship, the foreshadowing of where that's going, of their different cultures. But it's, it's again, it's this world that has stars and constellations that do have names and a reason behind it. The sheer amount of detail that George R. Martin puts into these books is, it's just astonishing. Um, We've got wine, but we have regions that are famous for wine, and we have particular vintages of wine. We don't just have, oh, there's some good wine from this place. It's far more nuanced than that. Um, Animals and plants that can only be found in certain places, butterflies that kill the visitors to that place, (laughs) which is like, we need more on this. Um, (laughs)
3: Yes, (laughs) Davos does.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Monuments that are just randomly in some overgrown region somewhere, and we have no reason why. Basically, if we accompany all of these tiny things and just build up this huge picture, It just makes for such a rewarding reading experience, doesn't it? And this is why we love George R. R. Martin. I'm done with my list. You can go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It kind of builds on some of the points we were making earlier about how it comes in drips and drabs and it's a slow burn. Uh, these, These little things are scattered throughout. And eventually, you know, you give someone a nickname, you put them in an interesting place or the first time you see them, the setting they're in is frequently designed to enhance their character. Like, Coldhands, the first time he appears, he comes from beneath the trees, quote-unquote. And this is language which implies, makes you think of green seers sitting beneath the trees. And uh, that's just one of those little keywords I picked up on. But it's similar with Lysa, you know, you're presented with Lysa sitting in the cold throne room. Uh, so... Uh, yes, these these little things all add up and it, it creates world building. So real quick, I just want to say something. We are almost at two hours, right at two o'clock here, or uh, two o'clock my time, I guess it's five Eastern. Uh, so my friend Azora Hype is about to go live and he's going to be doing a uh, live stream about the fate of House Lannister in season eight. So that would be a TV-based show. So if you guys are interested in that feel free to catch the rest of this on replay and go over to kyle's stream and we're probably only going to go another like 10 or 15 minutes anyway uh and then uh he'll be he'll be live there so i just wanted to give him a quick shout out we've coordinated with each other so as to try to not have streams at the same time and step on each other's toes too much because there's generally only so many people in the world looking for a uh, game of thrones live streams on any given day so you know, we True. try not to step on each other's. All of us content creators kind of do that. To be honest, we do coordinate and look out for each other as much as possible. So, don't uh, step on each other's webbed toes. Yes. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so, just to sort of uh, build towards the end here and wrapping things up, that I did want to bring up the Black Fires and Blood Raven because this is such a good example of sneaky world building, and Aziz has been uh, doing a deep dive on Blood Raven lately so uh why don't you give us a little bit on on that aziz sounds good yeah so the way
2: george this is this is not only does it speak to world building it also speaks to george's style as a writer which is as we know there's the whole architect versus gardener thing and so what george does is if you're a clever gardener you garden things in a way that you don't write yourself in a corner you give yourself options for later for example right now George could go either way on Tyrion's parentage. Some of us would hate it if he made Tyrion the son of Aerys. Some of us would be fine with it. Some of us would be like, eh, and shrug. The fact is, it's set up, whether he wants to do it or not. He can go either way. And the fact is, it's just not settled. So a a good example of of this comes very early in A Game of Thrones. Jon has his first real heart-to-heart with Maester Aemon, where Aemon reveals he's a Targaryen. At this point, is when we learn that sometime in the back, in, the, in history, eventually we get precise dates. But at, in, in you know way, in the, back then, he didn't give precise dates. We hear that there was a king named Aegon who had a brother named Amon the Dragon Knight, and there was some doubt as to which of them fathered uh, Daeron, um, the, the the good. This is world-building, kind of like that Tyrion chapter I mentioned before, because it's also speaking to Jon's hidden heritage. But it's also directly related to Aemon, because Aemon is referring to people that he directly descended from. Daron was his grandfather, the, the, the person that this mysterious parentage was related to. And... So and in, and even before that George introduced the three-eyed crow. The three-eyed crow makes an appearance before this this conversation with John and Eamon. And it turns out the three-eyed crow is Bloodraven, but At the time, George hadn't given him that name, Bloodraven. He had just decided, okay, what George had decided was that he was a Targaryen bastard or had Targaryen blood and that he had been alive for a long time and a few other small details, but he hadn't given him a name. He hadn't given him a family besides the Targaryen part. He hadn't filled out that family. He hadn't filled out that backstory. But now, years later... We have this guy's name. We have his brothers and sisters and family and the setting he was in. We have all of their stories. We have all of their relatives. We have all of their houses that they're connected to. We have an entire story starting from the beginning of his life all the way till he goes to the wall, and then a whole nother story once he gets to the wall and somehow gets into a tree in between all that. And this is all there, and it's all awesome, and it's all fascinating, and it's pretty much all in between. It's pretty much all you have to read between the lines to get. Ninety percent of it, and uh, or read the backstory, read you know read the world of ice and fire, or read the extended material, and and when you put it all together, it, it creates this like second story within the story, and uh, there's so much out of that you can glean to, for the future of A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, Bloodraven's story is filled with parallels, and I can't even go into it all. Um, you'll have to check out my episodes, but uh, there's just so much. Like I touched on earlier, Bloodraven dealt with the same prophecies that. Rhaegar dealt with that now Danny and John are in the midst of so it's and, and Mel all these characters so it's really it's it's beautiful how well it fits together and how well if you look at all these details you don't find any you you pretty much don't find mistakes you're like oh George kind of screwed this one up here it didn't you know this kind of kind of contradicts itself and uh because he's because because there's no narrator, you never get you, you can never uh, he's able to mask some of that behind uh our POV for the story, which is that we don't know what the truth is. We don't know what the real story is because we're all just in the world like the characters are and there's no narrator telling us. So So if it seems like something is contradictory, that's just a matter of perspective. You know, we don't ever have narrative conflict in terms of all knowing things being contradictory. So I think that's just really awesome the way it builds from this little tidbit of a story between Bran and the Three-Eyed Crow and then Jon talking to Maester Eamon and somehow all of that filling out into a whole world full of other characters and histories and backstories, all of which you can just spend hours and hours on and not run out of material to play with.
1: Yeah, I I really like the way that um, the Black Fire buildup is such a slow burn until all of a sudden we meet Fagon and the Golden Company and it just pops out. Uh, and the same thing with Bloodraven, you know, it's like we hear these whisperings and all of a sudden you get this character and really like if you haven't read dunk and egg blood raven doesn't pop quite as much um but when you've read dunk and egg uh and then use and then blood raven appears on the page then it's really f- friggin uh something especially so. if you've
3: read the uh, elric saga
1: oh yeah and when you read
2: I've watched you for for a long time with a thousand eyes and one it was like oh (laughs) thousand eyes and one that's unmistakable no one that is way too specific to be anybody else and then there's all these other clues that confirm it and and yeah that's just a I remember that moment reading that that was just like oh boy that's cool (laughs) even Elio and Linda like stopped jumped up to like make a tweet about that like oh thousand eyes and one blah 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 (laughs) really cool
1: And then uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up is uh, Joe. we wanted to talk about the idea of Martin as a short story writer, Mm -hmm. uh, because this really contributes to Martin's efficiency. Like kind of the underlying theme with everything that we're talking about is that the world building is done very efficiently and it's done in certain ways. And Martin often extols the virtues of writing short stories when he's giving, again, writing advice to young writers. He's saying start by writing short stories because it teaches you how to give someone a backstory quickly uh, and not spend a bunch of time uh, building crystal castles in the sky, as I like to say. Uh, But, you know, in a short story, you've got to get right to business with these emotional conflicts right away. So, Joe, you actually wanted to pull from some of Martin's short stories and make a couple of points. And by all means, why don't you do that? I was
3: going to talk about uh, three of them, but because we're short on time, I'm just going to talk about the most important one. And that is one of his early short stories called With Morning Comes Mistfall. And the basic setting of the story is it's in a thousand worlds, it's sci-fi, and there's this planet called Wraithworld. And even from, just from the name, like we were talking about with like the Wolfsten, it it almost sounds something like Disneyland. It sounds like a theme park. And then you find out that's what it is. What happened when humans first came to this world is some of the early explorers were killed by these things that, that people call rates. they're not quite sure what they are and you know there's horror story things about how like they went crazy and this person's found mutilated over here so people keep coming to this world trying to find the wraiths and it becomes a um it's a cottage industry that's the only thing that works on this planet and the really interesting thing about it is the mistfall is what happens is the entire world is um shrouded in mists that rise and fall and you're talking about crystal castles there basically is one it's called Mm -hmm. castle cloud it sits right at the top of where the mists come up in the mornings where so you can see mountains poking up and then it comes back down and a large part of the point of the story is um what we've been talking about the mystery of of storytelling and not getting all the information keeping your readers wanting more and i think there's an excellent quote from this because this ends up being uh, a key part of the story a scientist and a journalist have come to wraith world in order to discover what the true wraiths are they end up finding spoiler alert for uh <laughs> when morning comes this they find out they're nothing that they don't exist but hang a second let me pull this up okay here we go so here's the quote from the journalist to the to the man named sanders who runs the castle it says if duboski answers all the questions then there will be no reason to come here anymore and you'll be put out of business are you sure that's why you're so worried sanders glared at me i thought he was going to hit me every second but he didn't i thought you were different you looked at miss fall and understood i thought you did anyway but I guess I was wrong. You jerked his head to the door. Get out of here. And that's sort of his attitude towards uh, the world building. And you can see that all throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. He's asking you to buy in. And he's asking you not to really find all the answers. He's not, he's not going to tell you them. He wants you to come along with him and create a conversation with the reader and give you more to find. Because once you find out what the wraiths are, once you find out what the children are, once you find out what happened to the 14 flames and the intricacies of the Grand Empire of the Dawn, then the illusion is broken. Because that's what happens at the end of the story. With the wraiths proved non existent, the world just turns. Uh, wraith World gets renamed and it turns into basically just a industrial world, like all the others, all the other thousand worlds. And something that was wonderful in the thousand worlds is now gone.
2: No. No.
3: <laughs> well, there's
2: 999 more worlds.
3: Yeah. Probably... <laughs> the Herengan worlds are still out there to find, but... <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: I, love, I love that. I really love that a lot. And, and I think, how many times have we said, we're probably not going to get the answer to this, but that's not going to stop us speculating and debating and exploring... I think you're right that there's so much of this act. We think we, we, think we want to know, but
3: No, not really. It'd be boring.
0: Yeah. Exactly. It would. It would.
3: What we're doing right now is the fun part, that we're discussing yeah. all the possibilities. And I actually think it's kind of funny. And taking this story was written, I think, back in the 70s. It was a very early one for him. And then you hear all the stories from him going to conventions and people asking him questions and him refusing to giving answers on things. Like, this story is why does yeah. he really doesn't want you to know everything that's going on because that's he not knows the,
0: better than we
3: yeah. do <laughs> <laughs> He knows it's better that we don't that's yeah. why he says keep reading that's yeah. that's that's when when uh, that's the point of the of that short story keep reading it's more interesting if you find out organically than if he just tells you that, right.
0: that's quite beautiful
1: yeah the nice thing about uh is that nobody can leak george martin's inner thoughts or his draft that he does on his very old computer which is probably not connected to the internet uh right doesn't he w- work on some super old word, word processor? Star, yeah. yeah okay so
3: oh just because they're asking in the chat real quick um this comes from dream songs volume one and two if you want to pick those up they're excellent you get see a lot of his early work there's a huge amount of connections with the song of ice and fire because he's been workshopping Song of Ice and Fire for like 30, 40 years now. And this totally. is where they all come from. But that one in particular. And a
2: lot of them, yeah, and a lot of them connect to each other. If you really, if you're a fan of world building, you not only get George's world building spread across a bunch of different short stories, but you see like, like Joe said, you see those echoes in A Song of Ice and Fire. You see a lot of like those the early versions of concepts he used much later all over it. Really just so many good examples of that. And it's just fun. You know, like it's short stories, you know, you got uh, 20 Minutes to Kill in a Waiting Room or something. Uh, you got a 30 page short story. You can read San- Sand Kings, I just read. Nightflyers, I just read both of those recently. Those are Night so Nightflyers Night took maybe an hour to read at most, you mm-hmm. know, and Sand Kings probably a half hour. You know, they're, they're not big, deep dives, but you get that sense of, oh, this is George R. Martin. You know, you get, you feel that. It's like, oh, I recognize this. <laughs> so uh, that's, it's fun. You know, I highly recommend them too
3: sand kings especially it's such an odd concept that he's working with in that story but he gets you there it like you said it's only like a 10 15 minute read but you yeah by the end of it you understand the sand kings you understand the world where they came from and what the point of it was and it's like how did he do that (laughs) yeah it's really cool it feels like it's one chapter from a huge novel and it's it's really short it's unbelievable it's really good
1: (laughs) Yeah, And basically any of those short stories are great masterclasses on world building uh, because he's in a phone booth. I mean, it's there's only a little bit of space. So he's got to build the entire world or at least the important parts of it uh, with the efficiency, uh, just the utmost efficiency, I guess you'd say. So, yeah, the short stories are a great example of how world building is done. And it's definitely workshopping. He's definitely workshopping a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire ideas. That's what's funny, is that you can see the genesis of, of things like The Others and Leanna Stark with her Blue Rose and all this stuff. So those are good recommendations. All right, well, I think that about does it for today. We probably could do another two hours easily on world building, just pulling different examples and and showing it how. But basically, next time you do any rereads of A Song of Ice and Fire, just... Just uh think just think about all the stuff that we talked about and watch for Martin's world building and see how he does it and it'll just you know, it, these are good lessons for writing. If you're gonna do any writing of fiction, science fi or science fi, science fiction. Science fi. <laughs> Steampunk holographic good. goth horror anime or whatever it was that I made up earlier. So He's written all of those. <laughs> yeah, these are We could go with Fantasy. Yeah. Sci Fantasy. <laughs> All right. Well, in any yeah. case, thanks for coming, guys. And like I said, Azora Hype is just going live now over on his channel talking about season eight and the fate of House Lannister. So if you're into that, go over and check it out. Tell my said hi. And I will be seeing you next with a regular episode of Mythical Astronomy. Thank you so much to all of my guests. This has been a ton of fun, as I knew it would be. And uh, starting with Gemma, tell everyone where to find us and tell everyone what you got coming.
0: Um, I've got unraveling the text coming because I'm going to get lynched if I don't get a move on with that. Um, yeah, I'm Gemma from Secrets of the Citadel. I'm Gemma Secrets on Facebook. I'm at Citadel Secrets on Twitter, and I'm Secrets of the Citadel on Instagram. It's been an absolute pleasure, um, to discussed this with with all of you guys it's been great and i think i've brought some much-needed estrogen to this panel but it's (laughs) fantastic (laughs) thank you for having me um...
1: Well, I did put on the wig, but yes, that doesn't really count.
0: My hair's to
3: kind of learn, <laughs> All
1: right, cool. So, Joe, uh, yeah, go ahead.
3: Oof. Okay, uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel. It's dot youtube.com/slash joe magician. On Twitter, at joe magician forty two on the maester monthly podcast that i put on with my fellow a song of ice and fire mods if you didn't know that's i do that too Um, i'm also a feature writer for watchers on the wall coming out soon from that will be an article about how you kill a dragon specifically viserion for the upcoming show uh, using hints from the books and what's already in the show to try and figure that one out Um, as for what's coming with youtube uh as i said earlier me and amanda from disputed lands we're doing kind of a combo targaryen prophecy focused actually around uh maester aemon and daron the drunkard and all the and duncan egg and stuff which coincidentally i guess aziz is also working on at the same time so you're gonna get a lot of targaryen (laughs) prophecy coming up soon it should be really good um and is there anything else no i think that's it for me
1: Aziz, go ahead and promote your whatever you got coming. Cool. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, This was really fun.
2: Great stream, great chatters, great questions coming from the gallery there and a lot of support and uh, pumping us all up, making us have even more fun than we would have had. Um, As far as what we have coming up at History of Westeros, we do have Bloodraven Part 2. Like I said, it's his middle years as Hand of the King. It will uh, it ends with um, him going to the Wall. And then, of course, we'll be doing an episode of his time on the Wall and becoming the Three-Eyed Crow and all that. That should be a ton of fun. Uh, we're also, like I said, working on an, uh, a series of episodes about Nymeria, Nymeria of the Rhoynar. Uh, we're not sure how many episodes that'll take. We might try to break it up one area, one episode per location. She spends a lot of time in. That seems like a, a good way to, to try to approach it. We'll see how that goes. And we'll be having some more live streams on our channel for periodically. Our Why We Love series is uh, new, and we've got another couple topics in the in the queue for that. So look out for all that. And um, thanks again for having me on. And I enjoyed being with uh, Joe and Gemma as well. So Thanks again, everybody, and we'll uh, see you next time in our various uh, corners of the Asangvice and Fire internet.
1: There it is. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, It's been a great discussion, and I am told that uh, Kyle, after one quick false start, is now up and running, so there it is, over there on the Azora Hype channel. So thanks, guys. Check out everyone's channel, and Joe, I am really excited uh, for that collaboration with Amanda, and of course... Uh, that is the Disputed Lands YouTube channel, where uh, you can find a lot of cool Ironborn videos, to say the least.
3: She's told me what she has in mind, and it is impressive and awesome, and I really want to hear it. We're also going to do a live stream after we both release our videos.
1: Nice, nice. Well, I will be there for that, for sure. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Thanks for everyone for coming. We had 200 viewers most of the time, or 190 so. We got over 200, so really appreciate It, it means the world to me. Thanks for the support, and I'm going to keep cranking out these Between Two Weirdwoods panels. Uh, We just got some new ideas for panels today, so there'll be more coming in between the Mythical Astronomy episodes, and like I said, next time I'll be seeing you with an episode about Sansa and the Veil and all that really cool symbolism. We're going to finally talk about the Moon Door. You better believe that something called the Moon Door that we throw people out of has some Mythical Astronomy going on, so uh, yeah, that'll be fun. That's it, guys. Cheers. (laughs)